Hey man, are you looking for a place to get away from it all? A place to hide from the worries of the world, the struggles of your day-to-day, or a psychopathic police officer hell-bent on taking away everything that matters to you, ultimately harshing your mellow? At Refuge Harbor Homes, we offer affordable, middling-quality houses for former hippies, freaks, long hairs, bohemians, free spirits, and flower children. Located on the mouth of Seventh River, our community is built on love, harmony, and the most beautiful land around. A stone's throw away from Eureka and Crescent City, we have a thriving population of friends who love to take part in groovy activities like gardening, watching TV, home repair, watching TV, weekly swap meets, and so much more. Far out. out. Now dig on this. We know that the burdens of life can get so heavy, so we've taken every step possible to keep all those bad vibes out of sight. Man. That's why we also offer separate, distant amenities for those rascally thanatoids to keep them occupied and away from the general population. They won't scare you with their existential dread and desolation stemming from the unfathomable horror our government subjected them to. That's not your bag. Refuge Harbor Homes. Get away from the man and get yourself some land. A wholly owned subsidiary of Ralph Lincoln Enterprises itself. A wholly owned subsidiary. for joining us in mapping the zone a podcast dedicated to highly fixated reviews of large dense books specifically the works in context of thomas pinchon my name is kate and i'm one of the co-hosts my name is cody luke and i'm will and today we're going to be discussing chapter 14 of vineland we are officially in the second to last chapter here the penultimate chapter of of vineland before we will we'll finish up our third book that we are covering so far for this show and uh that being said i just want to as always start with you will do you have a summary for us i actually do yeah oh yeah so uh a year after Fernezzi's leaving hector and uh, what seems to be a literal ton of weed appeared in zoid's home one day instantly making the connection to bond zoid confronts hector about this attempted baby snatching who is indignant at the accusation. He blows his whistle and the troops outside rush in to apprehend the criminals. As Zoid is briefly considering the option of trading turning snitch for a call to Sasha before being hauled away, the unbeckonable grandmother herself arrives to berate her still son-in-law for whatever fool thing he got himself into to warrant this number of law enforcement officers. He fills her in on his deductions, though not before slinging his own insults. They apologize, and she takes prairie. Zoid then spends a day and a night in the jail, and is awakened by none other than Brock himself, afforded the prosecutor's precious time in order to simply lay the facts of the matter out as Fernezzi's legal representative. Chiefly, that they are not looking to to assume custody, in the least. Wheeler is to keep Prairie as far away from them as possible, 
and to harbor no childish intentions of reuniting with her mother. He explains his way of seeing their arrangement before instructing a subordinate to punch Zoid. Another night cell-bound until Hector arrives, offering freedom in exchange for information. Zoid blows up at him before being tricked into providing some information, and then damning him to a life as a turncoat. He arrives at Sasha's place and tells her everything that happened, except that Vaughn had forced him to watch Frenesi be escorted from jail into Brock's own car. Zoid and Sasha discuss options, ruling out the lamb. They settle on Vineland as a haven, obscurity by typicality. On their way up, Zoid stops to visit an old friend, Mucho Mas, and we and he learn what old Wendell's been up to since the mid-60s in Lot 49. Now completely straight, he and Zoid still reminisce a bit on their hopes for immort immortality. We watch as Zoid settles into his new life as a single dad in a long montage. One day, as a sick prairie asks how long she'll feel so ill, he realizes how much she matters to him, and that he'd done right bringing them to Vineland. All right. Thank you, Will. Who wants to get into their overall thoughts on this chapter first? Um, I'll just say that within the first sentence of this book, I almost audibly said, fuck you to Brock. Um, <laughs> I hate him so much. <laughs> He's he's really the worst person yeah. alive. Yeah. Um, no. Overall, like, I, I, it's a good chapter. It's not my favorite. Um, it's it's got some really good parts in it, um, and I, it's obviously important for setting up the final chapter that's coming. Um, but it's I don't. I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna say it's my least favorite chapter. I don't really know which one I would say that about but it's it's far from my favorite it's i felt it is i don't want to say serviceable but it was good just not it didn't really nothing really stupendous stood out to me overall yeah what about you will i'm sorry i'm just uh, i'm seething with rage <laughs> no I, I i do disagree though i i find this chapter incredibly satisfying and it's interesting because uh this is not the kind of chapter that i come to pension for but I really do love it because uh, it, it's, it's kind of like a perfect denouement of the story. Like it really does bring everything back together and it, you know, it's structurally very simple. It's just filling us in on the time between, you know, Frenesi leaving and uh, the beginning of the book from Zoid's perspective. Really a, a very quick rundown of that, what, 12 years, 14 years. Mm -hmm. it's uh i find it uh just about perfectly done though um it's it's uh i, I think it, it it really is just a kind of a summation of everything that has happened so far in a way that does drive home the character of zoid in a very illuminating way i think and i i find it really uh tranquil almost tranquil mm. sorry yeah, Luke, what about you? Yeah, I like this chapter. Um, I, I've been thinking this week about how it was kind of nice to return to Zoid. And how whenever we're with Zoid in this book, um, things are a bit more lighthearted. And, um, you know, it kind of seems like with Zoid, like, no matter what he goes through, he always kind of, like, like, uh, like the dude from The Big Lebowski, he always abides. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> 
And I don't, yeah, there's some really cool parts of this chapter. I like the whole the depiction of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, yeah, we we do get a little bit more about Vineland and and what it looks like and what it's like, which I enjoy. Um, and yeah, I mean it's it's a lower stakes chapter. We're still kind of we're setting up for the ending. Uh, where all the characters kind of I guess I don't want to spoil anything, but um, yeah, we're setting up for the ending. Going you know, Zoid and uh i guess i mean there's a lot of i guess a lot of this is backstory but we, yeah we're still um setting up for the ending which is nice um yeah i, I like this i like this chapter yeah i think i think it's a good chapter I, I think it's interesting to have a chapter that does seemingly feel very low stakes um because everything basically since zoid passed the business card to prairie has just been kind of on a continue a steady ramp up with how serious it all is yeah that was kind of where the pedal hit the metal for yeah um that car takes off and then just suddenly so does the narrative so it's interesting to to really get this moment of slowdown after all of that like it is we've talked about it a a lot especially in mason and dixon of these chapters where pinchon kind of gives the reader a break either from the like heavyweight assault of like thematic writing or just length or you know depravity or whatever it might be and this one i think is is where he's he gives you a moment to recover from the history lesson you've just received over you know 200 pages almost and then before he he brings you into the the sort of end game so to speak and i agree i i liked seeing more of vineland i think it's it's a cool place i think will basically hit the nail on the head when he said those people that you're looking for all migrated north to i think your example was the the pnw that's where they all are like that description of Vineland reminded me a lot of when when Will uh, made that joke in an earlier episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. Brock does like super suck. I hate him so much. One of the worst villains in recent history for stuff I've read. Um, and so you you get kind of that final resolution, that final nail in the coffin. If you needed any further convincing that he's terrible, um, and then yeah, you just kind of get this nice slowdown that includes a father who was at one time absent coming to be fond of his own child and like stepping more solidly into the role that a father is supposed to have, which sort of yeah. really gives you that extra context for their relationship at the beginning of the book. I, I do like Zoid's kind of redemption in this chapter, yeah. especially coming from last chapter where, where we had, you know, we see him kind of fuck off after uh, Prairie was born and, um, you know, we we knew at the beginning of the book that he was there for her, but they they still had a sort of semi contentious back and forth every now and then. But I think this chapter does a really good job of of really showing how dedicated to being a father he became. Like, absolutely, he wasn't there in the beginning, and that's a terrible thing. But he definitely stepped up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that moment where he sort of looks in his daughter's eyes as she's she's ill. Like, I can yeah, oh, I can man. imagine that that could be one of those moments pulled from reality of of either pinch on having a moment like that or or some other parent that he talked to like that just feels very immediate and relevant to to what your your mindset changes into when you have your own children absolutely so yeah will i was just gonna say I, i do think that in terms of character development for zoid in particular this chapter for some reason what what it brings to mind is this kind of a mental image of sorry for all of the uh topo- 
topological haters out there. <laughs> um, it, it brings to mind like a bow tie. If anybody has ever, you know, been a child looking at bow ties and just thinking, well, that's that's how I want to tie my shoes or whatever. You kind of just think, well, this doesn't make sense. You look at a bow tie and you look at the flatness and you look at how the one side is different from the other side of the of the actual fabric itself. And it just doesn't make any sense. And in this case, you know, you're looking at Zoid and thinking, okay, why is this guy still doing all of this stuff? And why is he still the way he is? And you do grow to really resent him in the middle parts of this book. Mm -hmm. While there is some sympathy, you know, he's he's kind of uh, really awful to be around, it seems. And then, you know, this chapter is kind of like when you when someone finally shows you how a, a bow tie works, and you see the little flip, you see the way that you twist the 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 ribbon around itself, and it makes sense, and it it's it's uh, it's just right in that way. That's a really good analogy. Yeah, that's a that, that is a very very good analogy. Um, I agree with you too, Will. That I think the way that this that this is structured, um, and and where it fits in the overall novel and how it sets everything up for, for the the closing out portion is is very impressive. Um, it's 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 a book that the first time I read it, I don't think I appreciated the the construction of how Pinchon put it together quite as much as I have this time through. With just the constant time skipping, the constant you know narrative change from that that long film session to the sixties and seventies to where we're at now, it is it is very impressive. Um, yeah. This chapter is a good illustration of that. So that being said, we open up this chapter with Brock being like, "Wow, just so gross." Just the 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 fact that his response to Prairie uh, existing, the fact that you know she had had a child was so you've reproduced like oh god uh. he's just he, if there's it's like he wakes up in the morning and just says to himself how can i be the scuzziest human being in all of my interactions today so that made my skin crawl immediately um as we we push forward um but the main thing is that he's now setting up zoid um to be put in a position where brock can can easily get in touch with him like i guess is a way to put it um and he plants a very comically oversized brick of weed in his house yeah which the description of that thing every time Pinchon returns to just how large it is he changes the way that he describes it or like the shape that it's compared to and it gets yeah. ever more like absurd <laughs> as it goes on but i just love the simple inclusion of like it's so big that it would it would have been physically impossible to get through through my doorway <laughs> like <laughs> almost as if they took the front of the house out and then brought it in and then put it back yeah i do that's i i i did like the um the kind of return to some of the humor that's in this chapter for sure yeah and, yeah. and to start especially it's needed after everything we've gone through and then especially after starting the the chapter the way it started so yeah it's uh, very much appreciated Nod to 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> um, yeah, and we and I just love the the very plain matter of fact way that him and Hector are discussing it of Hector being like, oh yeah, this is totally like I know that this isn't legit. Like no one would assume that this yeah. is legit. <laughs> like I know exactly what's going on here, and so does Zoid. But they're still gonna like 
play this out because they they you know they have to it that's another aspect of the humor in this scene that i loved um what did we think about this scene and and do we have any additional thoughts on it i really do love the way that uh it's it's just mentioned in two places the the favors returning favors and doing mm. a favor for somebody mm-hmm. Uh, it it feels very much like it, with that you suddenly get the understanding that Hector is beholden to people and not just in the oh he has a boss kind of way but he has personal debts that he can't default on in yeah. the same way that Zoid will soon have. That's a good. That's a really good call out. That's easily missed too. I do also like how again going back to the the theme of of television that has run through this it's this has a very uh police procedural procedural like, yes comedy vibe to it like the way it it's does. written very much plugs into that kind of tv show in fact as i was reading it i was reminded of a scene in the long goodbye the elliot gould philip marlowe movie where he goes back to his apartment and these two cops are waiting for him and they're trying to get some information out of Marlo that he's refusing to give them. And so what one of them does is pushes like Marlo into his partner and then his partner like flops on the floor. Like he just broke his leg and Marlo's response is literally to just dryly go, Oh, you guys are going to really pull this old shit. Are you like, <laughs> and that, that was the exact like vibe of this scene. I feel like in the book, yeah. Um, and you're right. It is something that has been used in a lot of of you know police procedural moments. The 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 really like corrupt cop or slightly corrupt cop inventing some reason to arrest somebody is very much a trope. I also think there's a there's a sitcom aspect to this scene too. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yes. Like him yeah. kicking back on his heels. Yeah, I think I think Hector just has watched so much television that he carries an aura of TV just everywhere he goes. Yeah, including his interactions with 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 uh, hippies, especially. Um, so from there, Pinchon throws Zoid in jail as a result of this narrative arc that he set up for Brock and Zoid to come face to face. And I do, I do, I do love like the different subtle manipulations that you see in place here um, from like who Zoid is forced to, to potentially be in a cell with like the entire way that Brock has set up this, this imprisonment is to put Zoid at like the biggest disadvantage possible. And it's interesting to see how, how Pinchon plays that out because he as a character doesn't necessarily know what's about to happen to him, but we definitely do. And you just mm-hmm. see Brock's fingerprints over the entire thing before he actually shows up um and before we get into their conversation any thoughts on the jail that he's sent to or anything like that well not not so much on the jail uh but i do i do really appreciate the kind of the outlining of zoids pretty paltry you know personal development throughout his adulthood so far Mm -hmm. basically learning to have emotions and then you know, realizing that sometimes you don't cry. And the time that this is reminded to us is in the form of him sitting in, like, a jail waiting room. Yeah, true. As though that's, like, (laughs) even 
even the most in touch with their feelings person would say, "Yeah, you should try it out, man." In in the, <laughs> in, the in the middle of where the guards and everyone else can see you, that's where you should be crying publicly. Yeah, that's gonna work out great for you on the inside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I did really like that short digression about men crying and how it was mm-hmm. more fashionable, supposedly, but you know, not necessarily mainstream, and how people responded. Um. It, it did kind of make me laugh and just kind of, it's a very hippie little tangent to go on. Yeah. Did, some, did you actually want to read that Luke? I, okay. That was one of the things that I, I had pulled as good stuff to go over. Following the wisdom of the time, Zoid bobbing around among the flotsam of his sunken marriage. I've been giving in to the impulse to cry. Anytime it came on him alone or in public, getting in touch with his feelings at top volume. Regardless of how it affected onlookers, their own problems, their attitudes towards life, their lunch. After hearing enough remarks like, no wonder she left you, blow your nose and act like a man, and cut your hair while you're at it, he'd come to think of crying as another form of pissing, just as likely at the wrong time and place to get him in trouble. And he learned after a while how to hold it all in till later, till he could safely be taken by the high salt wave. Often while some door was still closing, some emergency brake just notched up tight. Um, and it says he, this time he really had to wait for the rest of the day, grim and clenched, so he'd been handcuffed. It goes on from there. Yeah, just one of the many, again, excellent sections in this from the standpoint of, of the character development that it does give to, to Zoid. Um, yeah, that was one of my favorite sections of the chapter as well. Yeah, and it even... It even kind of symbolically connects back to the, the, the idea of the cyclical cultural or social movements, the way mm-hmm. that uh, in many cases people who are progressives reinvent uh, conservatism in this very visceral sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very true. I do think it's also worth going back a couple of steps before even Zoid ended up in jail. The The scene where Sasha comes over and... and is essentially taking control of, of Prairie from there. Um, there's a really beautifully written paragraph um, where she's talking to Zoid and Zoid's changing Prairie's diaper. Um, and he's in, in doing all this, it's kind of hitting him that like, he needs to really be savoring these moments because there's not going to be a lot of them left, especially if things go even further South than they might uh, at that time. Um, and just a really kind of, heartbreaking scene to like watch mm-hmm. him like understand what his fate is and, and having to give up his child and potentially forever you know he doesn't know at that time specifically what's going to happen to him uh, or how deep into trouble he is so you know he's really kind of having to reckon with that that part of his unknown future yeah very true and that's that obviously ties into the overall theme of Zoid you know learning to accept appreciate and love the the fact that he is a father it really mm-hmm. does start at that point and it is fun to watch Pinchon write out baby dialogue yeah it is and also the whole <laughs> the whole cloth diaper thing like as we used cloth diapers for um mostly for my daughter we did have them for my son too and it's like reading the the process like this is someone who knows what it what it is like to change a cloth diaper <laughs> so there's some experience on the page there he's been there he knows yep. he knows what i've seen <laughs> <laughs> so 
so Brock shows up in a very dramatic, like, uh, I would even so say, like, overly dramatic, filmy way to taunt somebody where he, you know, steps upside outside of his cell and just goes, Wheeler, <laughs> just again, God. just kind of like comically evil at times. But yeah. you just know that coming from him, it's like earnest and sinister in its earnestness as opposed yeah. to as opposed to just being ridiculous um and yeah they yeah well I, I just really love the description of like a doberman at night Wheeler, oh, yeah Wheeler, something <laughs> oh. just at every description of him and like then any sort of analogy given to to brock i love like and that is one of them like he he usually has pulled one out like one in each chapter the fascist like eagle statues on buildings one from the oh, previous chapter is amazing yeah. and then yeah comparing him here to a doberman which obviously through the correct lens has a different sense of uh you know foreboding or evil to it like it's it's very interesting that he he sort of always reminds you that this is a terrible human being in front of you <laughs> in any way that he can yeah and so we we i mean we do learn that his plans are not as bad or as you know potentially bad as they could be he could be planning to take prairie um instead he simply wants zoid to disappear basically and as a as a continuation of the previous chapter where where frenesi was around prairie long enough to start kind of coming into that same space that Zoe gets to where she wants to be a mother and she wants to go into the life that that means in an extended capacity and then loses it because Brock shows up and then Brock makes this request of Zoid really again underpins the depravity of this character almost as if he knows exactly what would happen if they weren't as far away from them as possible and that he's actively keeping Frenessi from becoming like the woman that she she thought she could be and, and would want to be and just knows exactly how to do that is just so creepy and gross and again underpins just how evil this character is. Um, but it's an incredibly effective scene to describe that evil. Yeah. Well, and the little, the little side path where we get to see Zoid kind of assuming what he does about Brock as a character is mm -hmm. a really interesting way to flesh him out. It's it's just very straightforward in the sense that, you know, this guy's just a maniac. But the way he's a maniac, the way he's compared to the, the people who drag race on highways and stuff, it's... Uh, I don't know. I think it, it, it's gripping. Yeah, I agree. Like he, he is, he is a villain that is somewhat compelling in the, the brutality that he engages in just from a, a standpoint of wondering like, why, why are you like this? Like what, what compels you to be this way? Yeah. And it's just, and, it, it gets back to what you were saying a couple episodes ago, Cody, about his so, so like solopsistic nature. Like, uh -huh. Yeah, he just cares about himself. And that's the thing is I think it's it can be really hard I think to write a a villainous antagonist that doesn't really have a backstory. Like we do, we never get a really clear picture of why Brock is the way he is. 
mm-hmm. I think that really serves the story better in this case. I think in some situations you kind of want to get the, you know, it, it's important to know, you know, where an antagonist is coming from so they can, they can have their own arc in, within the story. I, I don't think that would have helped in this situation. I think the, the story here benefits from us not knowing why Brock is the way he is. I think it, this goes back to the, that whole concept of, you know, there, some people are just evil and that's it. And it can be hard to grapple with that and understand that from a number of different perspectives, but that's just the case. There are just some people who are just like this. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, especially looking at it from a standpoint of we don't, like you're saying, we don't really know anything about his actual childhood or, or what made him the way that he is. We just know that he's like that. I think there's something chilling about the fact that he's just a prosecutor. Just that, like, this could be someone who, when they got into a role of pretty low-ranking government work, just that small bit of power was capable of corrupting him horribly yep. to becoming the person that he is now. And I think that there there is something in that that we've also talked about a couple times through this book where Pinchon is almost doing a federal government as cosmic horror idea of just there yeah. is this sort of evil that exists here that will corrupt people and drive them to do just heinous shit, even at the lowest levels of power where they don't even really have access to the the real sort of rooms where these decisions are made. Well, I think it's also telling that this he's, plugged into a a system that doesn't really stop him. And right. I think that's also part of what we're getting at here is that um, it's not just Brock the individual who is to blame for a lot of what's going on here. Like he's in a he he exists in within a system that basically allows him to thrive. Like yeah. the the police department is clearly not doing anything to curb his behavior in any way, shape, or form. If anything, they're really encouraging it. And it's that I think that just adds another layer of horror to all of this is that, you know, he's he is a a fungus growing in the right environment. Yeah. And I mean, that that really sells the importance of that scene between him and his boss when he runs away to Washington, where his boss is like, yep. if you want like if you want a hippie woman, you know, to 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 sleep with, to marry what we can get uh. you that like just that scene where like you're getting at Cody, a standpoint of. He is encouraged and supported by that larger apparatus, right? To that degree that Pinchon puts directly in the text, you know, a couple chapters ago. And that, you know, what Brock is ultimately doing is being a force of the societal change of the Nixon-Reagan era that is killing all of that possibility or that hope or that dream of what may have come if the, you know, the leftist revolution occurred is really, is, is really like it's really telling like he doesn't nothing happens to him because he's a he's doing exactly what needs to happen for this this next period of societal change to come along to to actually be effective will be so i i have to push back just a tiny bit on uh, not the point that either of you are getting at because i agree <laughs> with the the over the, the larger strokes of what both of you are saying but i do think that we know in as much as we can know why any character is doing anything why Brock is the way he is. I think that that's kind of the point of the last chapter is his, uh, that all it boils down to the only thing that makes him the way he is, is that that, like fundamental disgust and intolerance for like a lack of control. Mm. It's, it's just like for him, whether it's, uh, 
you know, whether it's a conditioned thing or it's a sincere, you know, outgrowth of his genetics in some way, you know, he, he hates that lack of control. He hates that idea of like, not, not idea of anything, but just, he hates the sensation that something is not being pared down. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. I think I'm, I think what I'm getting at is, is that we, that, yeah, that's the force that motivates him, but we're, it's never really made clear what got him to that point. Like what, you know, if, if there was an event in his life or if there were circumstances, you know, things that happened to him along the way that, that caused that part of him to form that, that basically instilled in him that, that need to control and that need to have control. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. That is what's, what's motivating him for sure. Well, and I, the only reason I bring it up is that I think that that colors the way that we, we should be thinking about, I guess, his uh, his tenure as that fungus growing in the right conditions. I think that that, that shapes the structure of what that environment is. Well, I do think it's interesting that I, what Cody was talking about, especially with the control aspect. I want to say it's in this chapter that it's mentioned that Brock has nightmares about forced conception. Um, but, you know, another word for forced conception is uh, rape, um, which kind of goes that back to some of the stuff that... last chapter. Oh, it was? Okay. okay. Yeah. It's I mean, that was this chapter. But yeah, um, I mean, that goes back to, I mean, you know, like that, the, there's aspects of being sexually assaulted and sexually assaulting someone else that is about control over that person or that person controlling you. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he does have that kind of trauma in his past, that could, um, you know, make him a little bit more uh, wanting to have, you know, if he is, if he was the victim of a sexual assault, whenever he was younger, it could make him, you know, crave the power to, to have the control to not have that not happen again, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can, I definitely agree with you, Luke. I think that that certainly underplays a good part of his psyche, especially yeah. when it comes to, his relationships with women. Yeah. So Zoid does. I I do love this, uh, this exchange in a lot of ways. Like the, the conversation itself is very interesting. And I also think it's interesting that not all of it seems to be rendered in the text because there is a, there is a quote about how long they'd been smoking, but the only dialogue that we read is really not enough for that many cigarettes to have gone through both of them. So it mm-hmm. is it is curious to wonder what else they might be discussing as that evening of of smoking cigarettes goes on and on and on. Um but we also get the the gross part where Brock tries to see what his his skull shape is so that he can do his esoteric skull shape racism. Yeah. Um and eventually he basically gives Zoid what the pitch is and Zoid knowing that he really just needs to do what he he can to protect his daughter agrees to it um but not before getting punched twice in what appears to be the most vicious two punches ever laid upon a, yeah. a, a person don't um, mess with ron <laughs> no <laughs> not at all um he'll 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 mess you up yep um I agree with you, though, Cody, in your note here about uh, the hard-boiled aspects of Pinchon. I think that there's a good chunk of that in this this chapter as a whole. Um, do you want to read that quote that you inserted I, there? I do, yeah. So I, and this is—the hard-boiled thing, I think, comes through in a lot of his 
uh, a lot of his work, and it's my yeah. especially in uh, Against the Day, and um, there were elements of it in um, in Inherent Vice, uh, but it's kind of peppered throughout all of them. But yeah, it's it's part of my favorite. Like you can really see where his his admiration for writers like Hammett and, and uh, Chandler, um, and even like uh, James Kane and those guys like really shines through. And it's in this particular paragraph is on page three hundred. They'd been smoking up a storm and could see each other only dimly through the nicotine weather, despite the strong light from overhead. Somewhere down the road from this federal facility, carried by the midnight wind from a biker's ball called, called Knucklehead Jacks, came live, loud rock and roll, ever-breaking waves of notes and squealing, screaming guitar solos that defied any number of rules, that also lifted the blood and reassured the soul of locked-up Zoid, who now had to reassess the nature of the threat and could still not believe Brock was telling him the terms of an actual deal. Were they plea bargaining? Did Brock really not want Prairie? Like, after reading that, the whole conversation between the two of them, I went back and I've, I reread it, and it it really has that kind of noirish, hard-boiled, uh, back-and-forth aspect to it that I really love, and it's so tight and well done, and I love writing like that. Yeah, I agree. It's it's some of my favorite stuff that he engages in in all of those books. And it is it is interesting that he has this this belief going into that interaction that he's actually going to try and make a play to get prairie oh yeah he's got no dog in that fight no (laughs) yeah i think it's i think that's so interesting that zoid wouldn't even think that this guy could be that bad that like maybe he's trying to get prairie to still make you know fernessie into a mother i assume that's what zoid is expecting but no he's not prepared for the fact that brock's like no actually i want the exact opposite yeah. Um it's it's quite a a, re- a reveal there at the end in a in a way that is very sort of detective novely where it just comes in the form of a question that the detective is asking themselves. Um and then of course after after he you know gets pummeled uh Hector shows back up to give him the terms of his release. Um what do we now that we've seen more of the two of them do we have any thoughts on their relationship and why Hector chooses to do this for him in this chapter. It's very interesting to see this part of it wrap back around from the beginning. So I I really get the sense just basically based on, you know, hope for a better world, even in this, in this very dark fictional novel um, that, that Hector, when he's saying like, you know what? I got to start thinking about lunch. Do you have to keep playing fuck fuck with this? What are they? Get you the right judge. Dig it. Nice minimum joint. All of that. I, 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 I get the sense just the degree he is protesting, the degree he is like acting like, yeah, I'm going to walk out of here and just leave you to rot in prison. I, I do get the sense that he does actually care, that he does actually, uh, but between that and the earlier scene where he's like, I would not kidnap your baby. That's not why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think that it shows that there is like sincerity in Hector and maybe it's because he's watched far too much Hawaii Five-0 <laughs> but he, he clearly does actually in my mind care for Zoid and for his family as people you know he might be willing to press him he might be willing to you know do as he's told but he he cares on some weird demented level yeah. On a on a side note, I for some reason whenever I read the scenes between Hector and Zoid, I just imagine them as as Joaquin Phoenix and Benicio del Toro. 
it's it, like the inherent I, vice yeah like, yeah characters. It's, it's it's doc and 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 sancho like i can't not i know they're not the same character i just like that's the image i have in my in my head is those two talking back and forth yeah that that's that's pretty good the audiobook guy does do a very funny uh narration of Hector, he does like a Ricardo Montalban thing. Oh, good. <laughs> which, which does lend an air of ridiculousness to to these scenes where he comes back up. But I, I agree with you, Will. Yeah. I, and I also think it's interesting that like the cop or like government worker who who is sort of buys into the myth of like America or does genuinely care or genuinely believes they're doing a good thing is is present in like a lot of Pinchon's work. I think is interesting. There like there is obviously some similarities between this character and Bigfoot. They're they're certainly, you know, have a similar relationship to the protagonist or the proposed protagonist of of their respective novels. Um but they do both seem to genuinely care about what they're doing and it does strike me reading through that dialogue between the two of them when he, he comes to, to set um, Zoid up with, with the, the checks and, you know, make sure that he's going to be all right, even though he's basically on lifetime parole, um, that he, he sort of makes it known that, like, I don't agree with this. Like, this is not a good, a good thing, so I'm going to do what I can to, to get you out of it as much as I can anyway. It's just interesting that that's such a recurrent thing in a lot of of Pinchon's work. Yeah. So, so I'm, I have, I kind of have an interpretation of this of this okay. section, and I would like to run it by all of you. Um, so I'm just going to re- going to read what um, Zoid tells Hector. Christ, Hector, croaking, shaking his head. Only Shorty I ever knew lives out in Hemet now, and since his Vietnam days has taken zero chances, won't even fly on the airplane no more. Not too promising for you outside of a little Darvon he cops off his old lady. He ain't even good for a Class 3 B, far as I know. And, you know, Hector plays it off like, yep, that's some key information. I don't think it, fe- I don't think it feasibly could be any useful information. Maybe Hector's I, just an idiot. Well, no, yeah. I don't think he is. I think this is Hector doing the letter of his orders. Mm-hmm. He, he, he is saying, all right, I got information out of you. You are yeah. now, I yeah. can now stamp you as an informant and get on with this, and I don't have to deal with this shit anymore. Very wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was that was certainly the impression that I got, too. That yeah. he, was, he was like, just give me like you're saying the dictionary definition of information yeah yeah and then i'll i'll set you up in a place where it's you'll be okay <laughs> yeah and that that's kind of where i think he differs from bigfoot true yeah bigfoot would not do that for Tom. no he, yeah. no I, I see bigfoot a lot as kind of like brock Fawn's soul in hector's kind of character oh i could see that yeah like that's a, there's a, st- a struggle between one and the other trying to take over and yeah well, yeah like, yeah and it's you know he's just like at his core you know to jump way ahead to inherent vice for for all the people who haven't read it um i just i see him as kind of at his core fascist not necessarily you know he's not a bad guy he just like at his deepest core hates the idea of anybody not following the script that he believes in mm-hmm Whereas Hector connection. doesn't seem like that. 
Yeah, almost as if he, the man he thinks he is or thinks he wants to be is Brock, but he's not capable of being that kind of man. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. That's good. So after that, we get the decision to go to Vineland um, between Zoid and his mother-in-law. Um, their relationship is so interesting because it's... It, it it's really cl- is. It's clear that his mother-in-law does not like him. Um, but is is still willing to to go to great lengths to help him and his daughter, most likely just because of his daughter. But it in this chapter, it really almost feels as though she feels somewhat beholden to help him, given that it's her daughter who ran away and like yeah. sort of caused this blow up of everything. I, yeah, their their relationship has been one that I've I've really paid close attention to over the past couple of chapters to see how it evolves, and it's an interesting thing that Benjamin's doing there in the kind of background. Yeah, I don't I don't think Sasha like actively hates Zoid. I think mm-hmm. she kind of she kind of puts it on that she does, but I think deep down like you know like you were saying a lot of it comes down to the fact that that Prairie's involved. Um but I think I think she kind of sees in Zoid a little bit of of who she was, but Zoid is just kind of a a more exaggerated version of it, you know, a later you know, she came from a time where, you know, she was fighting for what she believed in and, and fighting for the the unions and all that. And it was taken a lot more seriously. And I think she sees Zoid and his kind of continuing on that fight. But there's a, um, I guess, like a lack of, of seriousness that he has. You know, the, the, the 60s counterculture had a lot of, of humor and, and absurdness and weirdness involved in it. And I think she's kind of taking umbrage to that. Like I worked my ass off to put you all in a situation where you could keep fighting this fight and you're kind of doing it. But at the same time, a lot of you just can't get out of your own way and aren't taking this seriously. And it's failing because of that. And she sees that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what drives a lot of her kind of resentment towards him is it's not just him specifically, but what he represents, which is that overall, shift in the in the in the culture and 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 of the people who are fighting and continuing her push for what she wants and what she believes in it's a good point i also think most of the time when she insults him it includes the word hippie if not all the yeah, time like all the pejoratives all the, all the pejoratives include that so it is it is almost like she's just attacking his ideology rather than him as a person yeah so i i I don't know if I agree. I think that at this point, she hates him. I, I, I get the sense that she really does hate Zoid, and maybe it's just mm-hmm. because she's viewing him as like an archetype of the younger generation throwing it all away. Um, and I think that at, part of what I like about this chapter is that I get the sense that by the end of this chapter, as Zoid is coming into him, his own as a father, that mm-hmm. Sasha is also seeing that happen. And that's kind of what she, what, what's happening when she says, like, I just defrosted a pizza. For some reason, that's just how I read it. That makes sense, too. Yeah. yeah. Definitely see that. So they mount up to go out uh, and move down towards Vineland, which is described as sort of this this refuge for all of the, the itinerant hippies who don't know where to go now that the government has has sort of come in and busted up everything. Uh, down along the beaches in the the southern part of the state. Um, does anyone want to read the quote out there that of her going through the sort of description of Vineland as a place? I thought it was pretty cool. 
What uh, what page is it on? That's a good question. You, yeah, I'm just curious where part? you're starting from. I think it's 305. Seems like a lot of folks are heading that way lately. Seems like a lot of folks are heading that way lately, Zoid nodded. Well, once a year, we all we still all get together up there, cook out, play poker, carry on, all the traverses and beckers, my parents and their relatives. It used to be the high point of Furness's year, but she stopped coming after high school. You know, there'd be worse places for you in the old bundle to live, have a home, beautiful country, only a short spin up or down 101 from everything, from the two-street honky-tonks to the eateries of, Arcade, of Arcada to the surfing at Shelter Cove, and you'd have a social life, because lately this mass migration of freaks you spoke of, nothing personal, from L.A. North is spilling over into Vineland, so you'd have free babysitting too, dope connections, and an inexhaustible guitar player pool. Sounds groovy for sure, but the only jobs are fishing and lumbering, right? And I'm a piano player. You might have to live by your wits then. Um, it goes on for a while there. There's some really it good does, descriptions yeah. in that area. Um, yeah, it's 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 such an interesting thing that she's doing. She is she is pitching it as a place for people that like him that we know she doesn't really care for like to live yeah. but she's basically creating this like this paradise for it's, him she's giving him the real estate pitch a community of yeah. like-minded people <laughs> dope connections <laughs> no endless endless spots of guitar players um yeah it's it's pretty amazing so they they do they do decide to undergo that and they drive out to vineland um they go through san francisco and they run into mucho mas um here's where our connection to crying of lot 49 shows up um what do we think about his inclusion in the book here because i know it's usually much like the godzilla section one of the biggest things that people always talk about the fact that he shows up Uh, i really like his character uh in this book he does seem a little bit more fleshed out and, and uh more he's more entertaining in this book than he he was in the crime of all 49 um he he also i think we talked about this when we were going over the crime law 49 but he he does he does serve a bigger purpose in this book than he does in that book um oh yeah and I, he does i think like just like last week he does kind of serve to portray the um the depictions descriptions or depiction of the music industry is is like a circus or something like um yeah and i mean it does you know will's kind of gone over pension's views on on drugs and stuff and it does seem like mucho is is supposed to um kind of show the dark side of, of cocaine use and the dark side of, of drug use um which is interesting. I mean, we've already been over how, you know, the 80s were a pretty coke-fueled decade, and it is interesting that a music executive in that decade would be, um, you know, so desperate to quit cocaine that he, like, he'd be signed some legal contracts uh, related to not doing cocaine. Um, I do kind of like him. It's kind of a glow-up, to use the modern <laughs> modern term for, for Mucho, you know? So true. <laughs> he he's not he's he's kind of a forlorn uh fuck up in the crime block 49 and in this you know in, in this book he he's like a he's a record executive with you know women hanging all over him and he's very popular he's he's you know people know him random people on the street know him and stuff um he has personas yeah, he does true 
Yeah, I love the the Count Drugula thing because it's obviously a reference to Count Chocula, but I love mm, that whole yeah. section. Do you have any thoughts on his inclusion in the novel, Will? So I I think he's he's kind of funny because mm-hmm. uh, well yes on on that level, but also I, I think it's <laughs> it's an interesting inclusion because it's kind of the isolated massive discursive section of this chapter the rest mm-hmm. of the book with the exception of like the first two chapters has have been as you know everywhere as tangential as splintered and fragmented as anything in mason and dixon or gravity's rainbow really but here we have it isolated to just kind of a punchline like a, hey i've been setting this up as like commentary on the eighties. And you know how I set up that, uh, that, that thing with the, uh, record executives being hired from the streets, just literally children who do a bunch of acid knowing that they, they're the consumers. Uh-huh. Well, here's who that is now. <laughs> and along the way, we get a lot of like interesting commentary on like the nature of commitments and the, 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 the the choice to assume a role that you don't care about and how that can still have an effect on you. Um, but it's in a lot of ways, it's, it's kind of like pinching <laughs> a horrible analogy, but it's the only one that's coming to mind is a uh, pension being a surgeon paring away the extent of a tumor, but leaving like the cancerous mole in place. Just cutting the growth of the tumor out, just leaving yeah. the tumor there. Le- leaving Mucho <laughs> right here. He's just there. He, there's the, there's a d- deep, horrible root of like crazy shit to dig into, but all around it is healthy skin. <laughs> just the, this normal, uh, you know, catch up on things that you probably could assume about uh, about brain. Come on, what's his name? Zoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I love I love his inclusion in this novel. I, I think it's really interesting, too, that Pinchon basically makes a reference to Lot 49 right when he introduces him and in saying that what he went through, um, like, what was a surprisingly amicable divorce. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's so funny because just it, obviously if you've read both books, you know who the other side of that divorce was. Um, and so just him making that little nod and it just makes you wonder like, I wonder what, what did happen to Oedipa after that book ended? Where is she? What happened? At least she found out how to get out of that marriage that she was very clearly not happy in. Yeah. Um, and at the same time though, I don't know, it, it, this is probably just complete like, you know, pothead paranoia, but there was a part of me that when I read that line was like, maybe she's dead. Like maybe, maybe Tristero killed her and that was why the divorce was so easy. But um, that being aside, my crazy paranoia. Um, yeah, I, I think it sets up all of the stuff with Reagan really well. Obviously, a big section mm-hmm. of why he's in this this chapter is, is for the conversation they have at the record label um, during the production sessions on on their their album that they're recording. But uh, I, I like especially what you said, Will, about him representing kind of the crazy record executives that they got off the street but grown up into an adult because <laughs> that is that definitely does describe the whole count drugula section pretty well <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, did you have any thought oh go ahead will 
I was just going to follow up what you said about uh, Lot 49. Uh, Luke, you said back when we were covering that book about how kind of, I think it was you, how that the, the end of that is kind of uh, Oedipa being done with the marriage, just kind of coming to the realization that this is, this is it. I'm done with you, Mucho. And it is interesting to have just that complete void of discussion of her in this book. Because uh, she did her growing up in those horrible nights wandering San Francisco. Yeah. She did, yep. <laughs> Mucho had to go through like a weird cocaine blood contract to, to grow up. And he's still chasing tail, to, to use the term of the, of the day. Yeah, his, that his he friend. Is. Yeah, his live-in his live friend. Yeah. Yeah, Cody, was what did you think about it? Or, or what was, I, I had the impression that she was a secretary. No, she just referred to herself as a... Let me find it. It was pretty... Uh, uh, Hi, I'm Trillium, she whispered, uh, head to one side. Mucho's friend, and that's just what she leaves it at. Okay. It definitely gives off the vibe of a secretary that he's sleeping with, and that was oh, how she sure. became his secretary. Yeah. So. I mean, she's got his Rolodex pretty well memorized. Yeah. She does a lot of, like... It, it seems like she does a lot of secretarial type of work for him. So, um, yeah, I, I like I like the inclusion of Mucho. It's one of those things, again, going back to the difficulty of writing certain characters in certain ways. This is an opportunity for, you know, it it could have been really bad and felt really shoehorned and not worked at all. Mm-hmm. But I think Mucho's inclusion in here... Um, it does feel right, and for all the reasons that you all have have already kind of laid out, um, and especially I, my favorite part, I think, of this entire chapter is the conversation that that him and Zoid have, where they're kind of discussing the transition from Nixon to Reagan and what that means for everything. And there's such a uh, a somber resentment that that he has, and like he he kind of he he knows what's coming, and he yeah to have that weight and know that this is all coming down the pipeline and there's nothing any of us can do to stop it except sit and watch it happen and watch it destroy everything that we've done. It That's got to really suck. Um, so I, I, I really, yeah, I did like his inclusion here. I, I think that it could have been off-putting if it wasn't handled right, um, but I think it was handled very well and I, I don't think it would have felt the same if it wasn't someone that we were already kind of familiar with as a reader but you don't have to be familiar with if you haven't read lot 40 true i think i think knowing where zoid used to be and kind of where he is at the end of that book when Oedipa walks out and they have their sort of last conversation by the van and just sort of his his strange rambling about drugs to see him show up again now here you know in in his natch phase i believe is yeah. the exact word um is interesting um and it is it is also interesting that he he switched from psychedelics to a harder drug uh quote unquote which again did happen to a lot of those people in real life yep. and it got so out of control for him that he had to go see dr hugo schlapnik <laughs> which is a name that i have such a hard time saying without laughing Splanchnik. i forgot that name splanchnik Oh, uh, it just sounds like the most upstate New York dentist name 
or doctor name that I've I've heard at any point in my life. Um, I do gotta love working out of a suite of dust-free upper rooms in upper rooms. Oaks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what they'll try to snort. Um, yeah, yeah that, that to to see how it it bottomed him out so hard that he's gone down this pathway is, is interesting. Um, do we have any do we have any thoughts on on Splanchnik and the the whole absurd cocaine rehabilitation contract that he signs? I I loved it. It was hilarious. It was so funny. Yeah. I I really like it's like it's almost like a like a joke. It's like it's like the anti-joke of um symbolism of literary symbolism <laughs> in the the having the the treatment for the pain be novocaine yeah because like yes novocaine for all of for everyone who doesn't know is is derived from cocaine um but it has like no similar effects except for numbing oh (laughs) there there it's it's one of those things where you can sit around and think about okay what does that have to do with the earlier discussion of like you know the dmt and in weed or you know the real life example of you know crack being diluted cocaine but no there's nothing there it's literally just novocaine is a is an anesthetic but it's there for your brain to grab onto if you want fool reader (laughs) (laughs) i i do also just love the idea that he essentially starts coercing people into signing the contract just the way that he goes, oh, you don't want to sign? Let me show you my room of horrors in order to convince you that this is the best idea possible. The cross-section through the jazz musician's skull. Yeah. All his wet specimens that he has oh, stored God. away. <laughs> He's such an insane character that shows up for two pages. But I love it so much. Yeah, this is this is a really good moment where you're reminded that um, you know the advice for for new writers is not the same advice for experienced writers, because uh, show don't tell, no, don't show us this. This is horrible. Leave it at an <laughs> abscessed sinus, please. Don't show it. Don't describe yeah. that. We don't need that. That's not necessary. That's horrible. Yeah, that's that's so true. I don't I don't need to see that. Nor do I need to see the ear from Mason and Dixon. <laughs> Yeah, I see. I think he does kind of show us that you're. He does though, which is sad. Maybe, yeah. maybe he, maybe <laughs> if his one regret of Vineland was that he didn't, he didn't show us all the specimens. <laughs> we got, we got, we got the the nose scene in V. I don't think he felt the need to do it again. That's yeah. fair. That's yeah. fair. This this scene made me. I this is where I I have to think that a lot of well and I know actually that a lot of the writers on on The Simpsons were big fans of his because this reads like a it's very a Simpsons joke yeah. from like early nineties like after the book was published obviously but like it has there was specifically I'm thinking of there was a scene in the episode where Lisa has to get braces where she's hesitant to do so and the dentist pulls out the big book of British smiles. As an effort in an effort to coerce her into doing it, um, so yeah, I know for sure like these guys have, have definitely have read his work, and this kind of humor makes me like really fully glom onto that. Yeah, so true. Something something happened with with him and doctors. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but man, is it all over the place in his work. I don't blame him. I don't like him either. Fair. I was thinking about the the the, 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 the well, I guess rhetorical question proper, but you know, what is what is pinch and spear of doctors have to do with this or hatred yeah. of doctors? And I just I was thinking about the possibility, the very real possibility that you know everyone reading his books basically not everyone obviously but a lot of people reading these books are like well this guy's clearly like educated in anti-psychiatry and stuff when it, and, and you know it was you know it's like del, you know the anti-oedipus came out in 1972 and it's like oh my gosh gravity's rainbows on the same ideas it's, a, it's so smart thomas pynchon knows so much about philosophy and it's just it, what if it all boils down to the fact that he just doesn't like that people told him to get braces and that's all it yeah. is. And yeah. It's just that. And he hasn't done any of the connecting of the ideas. He doesn't have any thoughts about the the consent stuff pre pre this book. He's just doesn't like dentists and doesn't like any other doctors <laughs> as a result of it. I almost hope that that's the case. I, yeah. <laughs> oh my lord. Um so progressing forward in Mucho's timeline to catch us up to their meeting with Zoid, uh, what what did the Count Drugula, the different personas that he had, what did we think about this? Um, I think it's interesting because it, it recalled the uh, psychiatrist who had different faces that did different things. Yeah, um, uh, Doctor uh, Hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Um, not that there necessarily is a direct connection there, but it was something that occurred to me after i'd read through it but yeah him adopting these different personas and just sort of going around in a van spreading lsd out on the streets that's of high quality yeah it i just i just enjoyed it it was a funny yeah image to see him uh, in the in the count drugula persona mm-hmm. apparently what, what like, i've heard of similar stuff happening like i had a friend go to a concert in austin um and apparently someone at that concert was just hanging out magic mushrooms to the crowd i don't know if they were about right i don't yeah i don't think that they were like associated with a music label but it is something that people do at concerts and stuff oh yeah the last time i saw primus a guy came up to me and said do you want a hit of acid it costs a hug (laughs) (laughs) sounds about right (laughs) what it brought to mind for me was bobby boris pickett and the Monster Mash. Oh my god. <laughs> well, okay. that song's gonna be stuck in my head all week. Look what you've done to Cody. <laughs> You're welcome. It's already in there, god damn it. Oh my god. But yeah, between, between you know, Bobby Boris, Pickett, and uh, the dead, the, the Grateful Dead, you know. Mm-hmm. I, this yeah. is a very believable scene. Very true, especially the call out of, of Purple Owsley, as in, in particular, that's been made. Oh, man. Just everywhere in San Francisco. There's so much LSD, they're just delivering it in vans. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that sort of really does take us into the fact that they were once connected through the music business and that um, he, was, he was representing them for the, the label Indolent Records, which is a great name for a fictional really record is. label. <laughs> Um, and especially when founded on acid, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. <laughs> and we get to this interesting scene while they were recording, and Hector's also there for some reason, which oh, yeah. I love. 
<laughs> and just it leaves halfway through, but it's this interesting scene between the two of them in which they really talk about like specifically the death of this countercultural movement and the fact that it is also happening in the music. We get another reference to, you know, eventually the lyrics of music being controlled and that rock and roll is getting diluted down into to something different, that it was co-opted, and now they're coming for the drugs. And the, the first portion of this is kind of this, this talk between the two of them about how the, the LSD revealed to them that they would never die and that that was the big fear of the government, that, that they had figured this out and that they wouldn't be able to get them to to kind of forget that and now they're they're going to is sort of the first half of this conversation before the nixon and reagan stuff do we have any thoughts on the first half of this kind of discussion between them i do just love the the whole thing of you know hector showing up to the recording sessions and interjecting himself um you know i've i've, I've been i talked about this thing from the crime law 49 episodes where i've been friends with some bands and um you know, giving them feedback on their live performances and different stuff. And it is kind of, um, it, it can be interesting to see the creative process uh, at work. And that, that kind of stuff is a little bit more, you know, like it, when, you're, when you're at a recording studio, you're at a concert or, you know, somebody's asking you for feedback, it, you can watch it happen in real time sometimes, mm -hmm. as opposed to like giving writing feedback or different types of feedback. Um, I just really, I mean, I and it wouldn't surprise me honestly if if somebody, the, the at least one band, you know, had had somebody on parole or on probation, and their their PO came around and was trying to interject themselves. I do think it's also could be a metaphor for like kind of the man, like capital M, interjecting itself into rock and roll um, and trying to kind of normalize yeah. it and straighten it out, or the mm -hmm. label even just to boil yeah. it even further down. It is just really funny to me to picture like a DEA agent sitting in a recording studio being like, no, don't say that. Say this. And so <laughs> that's well, so it, true. It brings to mind kind of the inversion of the conspiracy theories about like in the 90s, the government sat down with record labels and they created gangster rap. Kind of the inversion of that whole dynamic. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. I don't see anything wrong with that assertion whatsoever. <laughs> Gotta destroy black neighborhoods mm -hmm. through music. Yeah. No, drugs don't work. People don't like drugs. Nope, crack is not effective. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they do like music. Um, so then that, that brings us to the, the second half, which is this perfectly sort of descriptive narrative conclusion to the, the kind of rise of Reagan that's sort of hung in the background a lot of these flashbacks. Um, yeah, so we get this we get this sort of dialogue about what the world is going to look like if, if Reagan gets his way or if, if this transfer of power between Nixon and Reagan is truly going to to bring about an end to everything. And I think it's it's another case of there's been a couple of different moments over this book where sort of you know, Pinchon has gotten into to what Reagan represents or what Nixon represented or what the kind of alternate version of the United States they these figures wanted to build were. Um, and it, this is just another example of that, of just so clearly forecasting of, of what the future was going to look like um, once this man came into power. Did we have any additional thoughts or anything we wanted to talk through about this half of their conversation? I, I love it. I think this is a pivotal yeah. part of of the the story itself and uh, it's kind of the 
one of the major themes of the book really kind of being distilled down to its absolute essences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree completely. It's, I mean, it's a half a page of, of conversation between them and it just really perfectly encapsulates everything that that's going to happen over the next 20 years in, in the time frame of the story. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting the way that the, you know, they're talking in the story in the, in the mid seventies, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the book's written in the late eighties, um, you know, maybe nine, 90th, the very latest. Uh, and it's, the, in the air very much was the the music police thing yeah and it's also kept to the least conversation really and and I, I wonder if y'all have any thoughts about the way that that music police thing has kind of faded away or if you think it hasn't in the in the you know past 30 years since this book came out i don't i don't necessarily think it's it hasn't gone away entirely. It's, I think it's certainly, um, I think the people in charge of it, the people spearheading all of it, the, you know, your tipper gores and, um, the, the PMRC and all of them, I think they got to a point where they realized that they weren't going to win that fight, that there was really no way to get what they wanted. Um, and I think they shifted from that into trying to find other mediums which they found distasteful and that they could distract from whatever issues. It shifted over to video games eventually, you know, where, you know, oh, video games are too violent, so we need to take those away and slap ratings on those. And then it was TV, and then it was, you know, they, they just keep kind of moving the dial a little bit more and a little bit more. And it really, I don't, at the end of the day, I don't think their end game is to enforce fully whatever it is that they're trying to enforce i think it's more of a distractionary element of just like if we can get people focusing on this then they're not going to worry about you know all the crazy shit that we're doing um so i you know while i do think that ultimately they would certainly love to have a world in which there's no profanity in music and, and there's no nudity on on film um i think it's just more a a, a weapon to you know, say, hey, look at look at this. Look how bad this is. Don't worry about you know the we're we're taking away, you know, whatever little bits of of money come your way still and giving it to these ultra rich people, or we're making these laws that are specifically targeting minority groups. Like, don't worry about that. Look at the there's naked people on TV, and we need that to stop. There's bad <laughs> words in music, and we need that to stop. Skinamax needs to go the way of the dodo. <laughs> Well, I mean, and that that's something that is certainly true even to this day. I mean, now nowadays it's just all culture war garbage. Yeah, but that's that, it, they've shifted the dial again. Yeah, yeah, that idea of of creating you know a distraction to to pull the viewer's attention away from what's really going on is is a very tried and true method. I think that as it relates specifically to music lyrics and and that whole thing, I think that has gone away um, because ultimately nowadays you really cannot control access to media the way that you used to be able to um you know you could just put a parental warning sticker on an album and that would be enough to keep parents from not letting their kids buy that record and so it was effective for the time but now if you want to listen to the explicit version of a song you can just go to spotify you can just go to you know you can just go to last fm you can just go to apple music or title or like 
there's just no way to really control that anymore. And even if you want to say like, well, you know, record labels can't sign artists that have, you know, explicit lyrics. Well, then there's also SoundCloud and Bandcamp where you have independent, you know, recording and uploading. And even if those websites were to get locked down, you can still have someone just create like a sub stack that they upload audio files to. So like from a standpoint of, you know, being able to actually control that in the way that they could have back in those Tipper Gore days. Um, I think it's, I think it's gone away just cause it's not, it's not really a feasible thing. So, so you don't think that, uh, Mucho's prescription here as a, as a cure bears out. You don't think that the solution is total asceticism. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, there was a time I flir- in my life where I flirted with asceticism, um, but I, I, I would personally say I don't see, I don't see the the value in that. <laughs> Anything else about Mucho before I ask a question about San Francisco? I don't have any other questions. I do want to just, I do want to read that little section, uh, mm-hmm. the conversation that they have. Uh, so it's on starts on page three thirteen. Uh, Mucha blinked sympathetically a little sadly. I guess it's over. We're on into a new world now. It's the Nixon years, and then it'll be the Reagan years. Oh, Reagan? No way he'll ever make president. Just please go careful, Zoid, because soon they're going to be coming after everything, not just drugs, but beer, cigarettes, sugar, salt, fat, you name it. Anything that could remotely please any of your senses, because they need to control all that, and they will. Fat police? Perfume police? Tube police? Music police? Good healthy shit police? Best to renounce everything now. Get a head start. Well, I still wish it was back then when you were uh, the count. Remember how the acid was? Remember that window pane down in Laguna that time? God, I knew then. I knew. They had a look. Uh-huh, me too. That you were never going to die. Ha. Ah, no wonder the state panicked. How are they supposed to control a population that knows it'll never die? When that was always their last big chip, when they thought they'd had the power of life and death, but acid gave us the x-ray vision to see through that one. So of course they had to take it away from us. I just, yeah, that, that whole conversation... Mm-hmm. is is so good it is it is and it's interesting to see how some of that stuff has changed over the years because mm-hmm. i obviously like the government has tried to control a lot of things over over its many different iterations but um you know they're trying to ban menthol cigarettes to take something out of of, of that list there but we have also seen the exact opposite in that instead of controlling you know the fat police as as he puts it they found ways to use to use terrible you know industrially farmed food to actually like affect people in the opposite direction that perhaps mm-hmm. it would be a better thing to actually make people fat rather than keep them from getting fat yeah. um it, it isn't it is an interesting thing where all of those all of those sort of elements of what Mucho was saying back in the 90s um, were forecasts, but maybe just in one direction or the other as far as what actually ended up happening, especially from that conservative, you know, Christian uh, right that we've talked about over the past couple of, epi- couple of episodes. Well, and that, that brings me to a question, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. Does this... So, okay, back in The Crying of Lot 49, Mucho can be very reasonably read as a kind of an icon of being wrong. Like, not everything he does is uh-huh. wrong. He's not an evil person, although some people would would, would claim him to be. He's um, maybe evil through neglect. Yeah, it's one of the, you yeah. know, he's advocating yeah. any kind of responsibility and therefore does horrible things. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's one of the, it, yeah. You know, he's not he's not right in almost anything he does or says. 
how are we what what is the type of irony we should be approaching this conversation with you know is is this two people who are on to something is this two people who are just bullshitting just talking about the good old days just indulging in that their favorite delusion or is there something that we're that we're supposed to take as like a, a sincere expression of the author's beliefs it's a good question i think i think that's one of those cases where we'll sometimes find one of these portions where the answer could be one or many of those things that you mentioned and that it really is part of this being a postmodern piece of literature that there there is not necessarily one right thing to take out of that because i think you can read it as yeah mucho's kind of like kind of a paragon of being wrong and really doesn't doesn't accomplish much um at least from the lot 49 impression but is is in this case seemingly either rehabilitated or or, or more intelligent or just better off and is instead looking back on that time where he was more of an idiot fondly like that could literally just be nostalgic you know memory but i think there's enough truth in what he's saying that it isn't that he's completely wrong or completely off base or or still you know that crazy um i think you can come away with it with a couple of different interpretations or, or thoughts absolutely yeah that makes sense so we get this we get this section where they they leave san francisco to head out towards you know sort of finally arriving in vineland and this this quote about the the golden gate bridge and san francisco kind of as an entity is one that comes up a lot when you do see this book getting discussed either on like the reddit or back when the discussion post for this chapter is made when the the reddit did their group read through mm-hmm. and obviously it, you also call it out in in your um opening sort of statements luke what did we think about this this quote what you know san francisco maybe represents or what pinchon is getting at with it um if someone wants to read the the golden gate bridge portion sure i can crossing the golden gate bridge represents a transition in the metaphysics of the region there to be felt even by travelers on wary as zoid when the bus full of northbound hippies first caught sight of it just at sundown as the fog was pouring in, the towers and cables ascending into pale gold otherworldly billows, you heard a lot of wow and beautiful, though Zoid only found it beautiful in the way a firearm is, because of the bad dream unreleased inside it, in this case the brute simplicity of height, the finality of what swept below relentlessly out to sea. They rose into the strange gold smothering visibility down to half a car length, Prairie standing up on the seat, gazing out the window, heading for nothing but trees, fish, and fog, slick from here on in, sniffling, till your mama comes home, he wanted to say, but didn't. She looked around him with a wide smile. This. Yeah, so what what do we think about that, that description of the bridge and kind of that transitionary point? I've been on the Golden Gate Bridge um, just one time a few years ago, two or three years ago. Um, it it is an interesting experience to to do it. It does kind of feel like you're going through a portal or something, which might be somewhat uh, an aspect of what Pension is getting at. Um, I do think I don't. I think they're heading north, uh, out of San Francisco, which I do think um, 
you know, Northern California, because I think San Francisco is kind of in the middle of California on the coastline. Yeah. I, think, I think it's still called Northern California. Um, I have very, I have no direct experience with Northern, with what's north of California, the northern part of California, north of San Francisco. Uh, we're just picking up stuff from reading, you know, stuff like Vineland and other stuff. Um, it does seem to be a more more of a mixture of conservative and, and liberal and more kind of redneck and rural and hillbilly. Um, maybe granola might be another way to phrase that. Crunchy or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think, I mean, it's a transition from rural or from urban to rural, I think. I'm not 100% on the exact boundaries of, of what city is where in San Francisco. But I do mm -hmm. think it's kind of a... At the Golden Gate Bridge is you transitioning from a very from the city into a more kind of pastoral landscape. Um, you know, San Francisco in general during this time period, you know, the Haight Ashbury. So I think we're back in, or I guess we're yeah we're back in the '60s. I think yeah. So the Haight, or maybe the early '70s. Yeah, the Haight Ashbury thing would have been um, a big deal back then. San Francisco is a big cultural kind of nexus for the hippie movement um so you might be kind of moving away from a hippie dominated uh, area into a more kind of mixed bag of different kinds of people mm -hmm. um yeah that was sort yeah. of the way that i took it was that it was a kind of transition from the california that is is most widely known that like southern california sort of surfer hippie you know uh hollywood system understanding of the state to a completely different thing um uh, different people different politics different you know landscape like there's a lot of like ranching that goes on in in northern california um mm -hmm. specifically with like sheep and other other you know livestock animals like that um and it's very different politically like it is it is a very different it was almost a very different state but the whole state kind of gets pilloried into an understanding that it's just la similar to like illinois and chicago yeah no, I, I think that's what it is. I think it's San Francisco at the time in this, well, at least in the '60s, was kind of the, like Luke said, like the nexus of of the counterculture movement. That's where a lot of the the organizations um, started or headquartered, um, or you know, and a lot of people went down there. You had a lot of bands that came out of that area. So I think it's just kind of you know that that departure away from all of that. That you're kind of getting out of that bubble at that point. That's the last outer edges of of that life that Zoid was leaving and, and that, that bridge is kind of the disconnection point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I can't help but be reminded of in, again, crying of law 49, the depictions of both LA and San Francisco as these kind of nexuses of, uh, you know, these, these mechanisms of control being the, you know, the, the economy and the, the land development and the, the way that uh, this section kind of unites the the divide of like historical Northern California versus Southern California, because nowadays it's all sorts of mixed up. You know, we're thirty years on from this book, let alone you know pre sixties, when you know San Francisco was a you know a it's, it's Atlantic City of the West Coast, and north of there it was nothing but like weird farmers and stuff, and so it was like all conservative in terms of, you know, simple binaries. And whereas south of there, it's like, oh, that's where all the rich liberals are. And mm -hmm. now is when everything's getting stirred up. 
I think it's it's yeah, it's a really lovely way to combine those images. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, this is kind of an aside, but we do get a, uh, a reference to Charles Manson in this chapter, and I do think it's important. It's kind oh, of yeah. historically and, and different stuff that, you know, the Manson family was technically started in, in San Francisco. Um, yeah, and that the Manson stuff comes up. I'm going to, I'm going to probably, I'm preparing myself to talk probably too much about Manson and the Inherit Vice episodes that will be upcoming in <laughs> however long, so. <laughs> You're doing your research now. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. What do we think about the interaction with Zoid's car and Van Meter and the person who looks exactly oh like God. Zoid that's looking right back at Zoid as the, <laughs> as the text italicizes? Oh, that was a good scene. It was like something out of Twin Peaks. I was going to say, it reminded me of the scene in, in uh, Firewalk with me. Yeah, where, with uh, Leland and, and Laura. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's so creepy but absurd at the same time. Yeah, it that's is. exactly what it reminded me of. Yeah, exactly. Here too. I do love the description of his car, his '64 Dodge Dart, unmistakably his own short, with the LSD paint job, day glow hubcaps with the eyes on them, <laughs> nude with streamlined tits, hood ornament, and at the wheel a standard issue hippie freak who looked just like him. Like Ooh. just yeah, <laughs> it's it's such a. I would love to see what that car looks like with an LSD paint job. Yeah. Um, it probably would look like one of those uh, thermal paint things that I see every now and then where the color shifts depending on yeah, the light and heat. That would make sense. The fact that he went out and got a custom hood ornament is absurd. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, wait, wait a second. You see cars with those paint jobs, Cody? Have you not seen those those thermal paint things? Yeah, Certainly. it's a real thing nowadays. It's, no, I, I I know it's a real thing, but in in your neck of the woods, yeah. What San Antonio has a weird <laughs> there's a there's a weird car. Uh, I don't want to call it a cult, but um, there's a pretty decent like car community, like customization community. Um, so yeah, I, we see some weird weird choices for cars down here. San Antonio is just kind of weird in general. I feel like it's it's a real yeah it's a real melting pot of of a lot of different kind of people. Sure, here here we just it, it's all metal flake, all metal flake. So nothing <laughs> nothing too modern here. Yeah, nothing too modern in Wisconsin either. Y'all Not gonna... come to San Antonio and catch all the all the wild ass, <laughs> especially the people that. Uh, don't strap down stuff in the back of their trucks, but they'll have their friends back there just hanging out, holding on to it. Perfect. That's the, yeah. That's the ideal way to haul that's, something. It's, that's the only way to do it. So then we get, we get kind of our, our description of Vineland, so to speak, after they make their way there. And uh, this comes from page 316, where it says, a harbor of refuge, as the 1851 survey map called it, to vessels that may have suffered on their way north from the strong headwinds that prevail along this coast from May to October. Vineland Bay, at the mouth of Seventh River, was protected from the sea and its many unsolved mysteries by two spits, Thumb and Old Thumb, and an island out in the bay called False Thumb. The spits were joined by a bridge, as, with the, as was the inner of the two, Old Thumb, with the city of Vineland, which curved the length of the harbor's shoreline, both spans being graceful examples of the concrete Art Deco bridges built all over the Northwest by the WPA during the Great Depression. 
Zoid, who was driving, came at last up at a long forest-lined grade and cresting saw the trees fold away. As there below swung dizzily into view came Vineland. All the geometry of the bay neutrally filtered under pre-storm clouds, the crystalline openwork arcs of the pale bridges, a tall power plant stack whose plume blew straight north, meaning rain on the way, a jet in the sky ascending from Vineland International south of town, Corps of Engineers Marina with salmon boats, power cruisers, and day sailors all docked together, and spilling uphill from the shoreline a couple of square miles crowded with wood Victorian houses, Quonset sheds, post-war prefab ranch, and split-level units, little trailer parks, lumber baron floridity, New Deal earnestness, and the federal building, jaggedly faceted obsidian black standing apart inside a vast parking lot whose fences were topped with concertina wire. Don't know. I just landed one night, Van Meter said. Sitting there in the morning when everybody woke up, folks seemed to be getting used to it. I I love that description of Vineland because it goes from this kind of like beautiful, idyllic, almost like Norman Rockwell kind of painting in its description too. And then there's just this ugly federal building that showed overnight <laughs> right in the middle. <laughs> Dropped out of the sky. The yeah. real monolith has arrived. Exactly. <laughs> The, the the center of, of re-education has arrived to Vineland. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's a great description of, of the city and kind of helps underpin the, the overall kind of vibe that you pick up from the earlier chapters when, when Zoid's going about doing his sort of daily chores. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it You can see why it would have been like a nice place for him to take his kid and and raise her and why, you know, Fernessi had such a good time when she was a child there. It seems like just kind of a a wholesome place to raise your family. Well, I think that's, uh, that's representative of the, the kind of promise that a lot of people were made at that time of, you know, Mm -hmm. especially with the, with the incoming real estate boom, you know, this, this is the great place to raise your family and the white picket fence and the whole leave it to beaver kind of life. And that's the, you know, again, to make the, the tie back to, to Lynch and like blue velvet, like that's, all and fine on the surface, but that certainly isn't what was actually, you know, eventually lurking under the surface there. It was, you know, the setup for a lot of empty promises and destroyed dreams that were not too far down the road. Right. And you're really seeing, you know, Pinchon illustrate the way that the hippies turned into the baby boomers as far as how we Mm -hmm. would define them now. Just this sense that like, you know, Zoid is this is this countercultural figure who's who's just played in bands and his you know uh, mother in law just goes yeah why don't you go up to Vineland and just buy a house like yeah that's that's just that's just pitched as this very normal thing for him to do which is not the case for people anymore and a lot of that is because all of that land all those houses were bought up by all these you know ex hippies and and people who who turned into the the baby boomer generation who hold most of the land and and most of the wealth in this country still to this day it's interesting because in his description of sort of zoid's odyssey up there you kind of when you think about you know what the baby boomer american dream is right it isn't what the hippies were talking about it is that white picket fence it is that blue velvet opening you know montage it's it's what vineland is depicted as Yep. So it's it's interesting that he so expertly weaves that into the narrative here. Yeah, and even more so because like of all the people to to illustrate that, Zoid is like the least of the uh the problematic elements of that that transition within the generation. 
Because, mm-hmm. you know, he really is still, to the to through the mid-80s, still, you know, carrying a torch for the movement. Yeah. Yep. He's still yeah. a true believer, you know. He, just because... Just because I moved here doesn't mean I don't still believe what I said I believe. <laughs> you know, and that 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 conflict of identity that you know yep. all people deal yeah. with on some level, and the the depths of it with with this generation. Yeah, so true. The way the way you impersonated that was almost like a, a person explaining that they they moved to the suburbs not because they were afraid of crime, but because they just liked the neighborhood better. <laughs> well, you know, they had two friends living nearby. Yeah, hey, the you know the the house was really cheap. They really, you know it, they're they're. But yeah, no, it's it's very normal and not in not just in the sense of like oh it happened to the baby boomers, but also you know just people. You know, everybody compromises with their beliefs, and in this way, pensions kind of showing the way that the natural compromise for these people completely destroyed their dreams. Hmm. Yep. It's amazing stuff. Is there anything else we want to mention about Vineland? We get a lot of sort of like touring through Vineland sections. Like there's there's the next section I want to say two pages after the quote I just read where you kind of get a sense of like what the downtown is like and then eventually of course we get to we get to see um like where his house is at and kind of just some more community stuff. Is there anything else we want to bring up or talk about within all of that? Well, do any of you see a, a purpose to the inclusion of uh, Desmond's origin? Is that his name? Desmond? The dog? Yeah. yeah. Do I see a purpose in it? Well, just, I, I don't, I mean, it's there, and I think it's a sweet little moment to see, uh, you know, where Zoe got him. But I, I'm not sure. I, you know, it, it feels very important just because of how important Desmond is to the first chapter. And then it's just like, well, yeah, that's yeah. Who he is. I I guess maybe it could have been expanded on a little bit. It made you know if if you're gonna have it there, maybe give us a little bit more, um, to kind of drive home the importance or the connection there. I could just generally use more about Desmond in this book. More dogs everywhere. <laughs> a whole give me a whole chapter of Desmond. Just just write Isle of Dogs, but make it a book. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. I can't say that I came away with anything specific in relation to Desmond. Yeah, no, it's, I'm only asking because when I when I was reading through this again, I, I was just thinking, I really like this. Why do I like this? No reason, <laughs> I guess. There's nothing here. I think I think it does, you know, potentially solidify that Pinchon is actually a dog person. When <laughs> that's been a mystery until here. Yeah, <laughs> I well, I feel like a lot of people would assume he's a cat person, but. I feel like maybe he's maybe it's more esoteric than that. Maybe he's like a ferret guy. Oh, I could see that. Or I could, you know, I could see him having a tortoise. Or a tortoise. I had a tortoise. I had two tortoises. What were their names? One was called Goofy and the other was Speeders. Good names. Yeah. My sister and I had them. We had one of them. I don't remember which one it was. We had for a long time. They do. They do tend to live a long time. Uh-huh. They weren't. They weren't the ones that get like real, real big. It was just one of the kind of smaller ones. But they were still. We. I friend of our a friend of my wife's family. Um, they have one of the big ones, and it's like, I think they tried to pin it down. And it's like almost eighty. Dang. That's you gotta like put that pet in your will. 
I know. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else for this chapter before we move into funny parts? Um, I I did like the the brief kind of descriptions of of Zoid's life once he kind of settles in. Mm-hmm. Um, just like his going about the the town, and then do we want to talk about the the mention of the Thanatoids that comes in at the end of the chapter? Oh, just that, that that he's he's up there doing the work on their their living complexes. Yeah, well, I mean, just the fact that that's that's yeah. what they like. They've been kind of relocated into these kind of housing developments where you know. I, I think again, if you're looking at this at, at at them as as displaced Vietnam vets, or not even just Vietnam, just any like war vets, like victims you know, of government. That's that's yeah, it's, you know, just resettle them, get them out of the way, and we mm-hmm. don't have to we don't have to worry about them. I think that kind of says a lot about the way that that these people, you know, it's I of all the people I thought I would have this conversation with. It it was weird. I was talking to my grandma yesterday. We went, went up and visited her. And um, I don't remember how it came up. She, we, we were talking about, um, about. Oh, I think she met, she was asking. It somehow in the conversation, it came up like like the reason that that we have so many wars. And this is you know her. My grandpa was in the Korean War. Um, my my uncle was in the Navy. Um, so I've got people in my in my family from the military, but she was like, she got real somber for a little bit. And she was like, you know, why do we have all these wars? Like we we're sending all these boys off and then they either don't come home or they come home and they're like, they just can't function anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer to that. It's, it sucks. And I think, you know, it got me thinking about this, this section with the Thanatoids and like they're, they're sold on this promise of, especially in, around this time where, you know, they've kind of shifted this idea of the military and, and try to glorify, you know, like we talked about earlier with, uh, I think it was Sasha's dad. Um, you know, that whole, like, I just want to go out and kill people. Well, Hey, you can do that here. Um, yeah. you know, they, they sold these people on, on this, you know, idea of either being a hero or, or, you know, going out and you just get to kill what, you know, whoever you want. And then they come back absolutely fucked up and, most of them just don't get cared for. You know, they end up on the streets or they end up in these these housing developments where they're just like not really living a life. They're just existing and, and going day to day in a sort of haze. And it's sad that they got put into that situation after everything that they, they gave up. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, it, it just gets back to the the fact that like, I don't remember what episode it was that we were talking about it, but how this book sort of analyzes the the human cost of a lot of these things that the government does yeah um and it's it's effect on people as as human beings i mean the whole thing you're talking about really reminds me of the conversation in inherent vice between doc and coy where he's trying to make the illusion to you know the your your government or your country is strung out on smack except instead of smack it's sending off people to die in jungles for reasons they can't understand yep um yeah which is very accurate to how this country did its business through most of the late 1900s and into the present day. Yep. Sorry, uh, clarifying question. Is this actually the first time in the book that there's been the direct link between the Thanatoids and Vietnam vets? Because we've been talking about it this whole time, having read the book before. But is has it actually been directly pointed out by the narrator before here? I feel like it came up at one point in one of the earlier chapters. 
it's where in, in the was, blood and vado section they're talking yeah. about how a lot of the thanatoids seem to have had lingering trauma from being over in the war oh, yeah okay it's like heavily implied yeah yeah True. yeah it's not explicitly stated it's yeah like luke said it's heavily implied <laughs> yeah it's it's it seems to be not exclusive to that, but it, their population certainly increased as a result of Vietnam, I guess is the easiest that, way to put it. That, yeah. I think, is is explicitly stated somewhere that the yeah. Thanatoid population really exploded after the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. It is cool. <laughs> very, very <laughs> cool, very chill, very fun. <laughs> <laughs> You know what else is cool? Funny stuff. Yeah. Did we have any funny? <laughs> um, that was my, my attempt my... At, a, at a segue. <laughs> Go ahead, Luke. My funniest part is, uh, and my it's really fun to picture the 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 bag of weed as the monolith from two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like the you know, like the music whenever they see the monolith, you know, like right. they, touch like, it. And walks. Yeah, Zoid walks in and then like you know it's like bang or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do yeah. love that. I think the whole young Kissinger concept is probably Woody my Allen favorite one because he does look like a young Henry Kissinger, like, especially with the glasses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just imagining that performance of Woody Allen as young Kissinger really, really killed me. Oh my god! Yeah, like <laughs> very, very disturbing. <laughs> um i i've i thought the the scene where hector was describing uh kqas was pretty hilarious like his hyper specificity yeah um i'll read i'll read the section here um some pages it starts on page 312 oh that's okay hector putting on his face uh goofy and dangerous look as of some old time poncho flying high on reefer a preferred intimidation technique that extended to his suit, which he'd had semi-retailored to suggest the zoot of the 1940s. But let me tell you, because sometimes I hear records on your label when I'm out, you know, cruising. So I really want to tell you, man, about my car radio. He moved closer to Mucha, who'd already read and filed away, filed Hector's story by now, and would presently begin to edge away, which is kind of unique because it really, it only gets this one station, KQAS, kick-ass, 460 on the AM dial. I got their decal on my car window. You can see, you can look at it later if you want. I got their t-shirt too. <laughs> But I'm not wearing it today. It's too bad. It's got a good picture on it. It's what it is. It's this close-up of a foot and an ass, you know, like a freeze frame, right where the foot is just making that first contact with the ass, right? <laughs> so, yeah, who's on the cocaine in this scene? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the way Cody read it. It sounded more like a, a five-year-old who comes to you yeah. to tell, tell you a story and just... That's exactly how I read it. With... Yeah. <laughs> and just getting closer and closer and closer. Yeah, like just inching slowly towards, like, you I know. Got the, oh my God. I got this t shirt, but I'm not wearing it now. It's really good, though. That especially. The fingers. Or the, just the detail that has their sticker on his car. <laughs> oh my God. I think I may need you to, like, just cut you reading that quote out and send it to me in the final edit in case I ever need to laugh, because that was an amazing performance of... Thank you. I'll add that to our collection that of quote. snippets that we've saved. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Any other funny moments that anyone wants to bring up? So I really like uh, a, ways, a ways earlier in the chapter when... um. 
Zoid is staying with the com staying with Van Meter's commune, and he decides that he's just had enough. In the morning, gonging with insomniac beer and tobacco headache, Zoid stumbled to the residence of the commune elder and gave notice. How's that? Cupping an ear as an F4 phantom came screaming invisible in the swamp haze. Said that we're gonna be... The rest was swallowed in a fugue of B-52s. F4 phantom, I think! Screaming through megaphone hands. Well, thanks, gotta be going! Zoid mouthed without wasting his voice, smiled, <laughs> waved, tipped his hat, and was off hitchhiking with his baby and their effects inside the quarter hour. I just... It's a great comical scene to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh man, so true. Um, so that brings us into two quotes. Um, my quote comes from page 317. Um, in, in this whole sort of long description of, of Vineland as a city, uh, it says, Someday this would all be part of a Eureka Crescent City Vineland megalopolis, but for now, the primary seacoast, forest, riverbanks, and bay were still not much different from what early visitors in Spanish and Russian ships had been. Along with noting the size and fierceness of the salmon, the fog-brown treachery of the coasts, the fishing villages of the Yurok and Talawa people, log keepers not known for their psychic gifts had remembered to write down more than once. The sense they had of some invisible boundary met when approaching from the sea, past the capes of somber evergreen, the stands of redwoods with their perfect trunks and cloudy foliage, foliage, too high, too red to be literal trees, carrying therefore another intention, which the Indians might have known about but did not share. They could be seen in f photographs beginning at the turn of the century, villagers watching the photographer at work, often posed in native gear before silvery, blurred vistas, Black tips of sea mounts emerging from gray, sea-fringed and brute-innocent white breakings, basalt cliffs like castle ruins, the mast and breathing redwoods alive forever, while the light in those pictures could be seen even today in the surface of Vineland. The rainy indifference with which it fell on surfaces, the call to attend to territories of the spirit, for what else could the antique emulsions have been revealing? I love that quote for a lot of reasons. One, it's it's some amazing nature writing when he gets into the description of like the coastline and the cliffs and all of that yeah. in the second half. But also, I think it's so interesting how a lot of the first half is sort of what he spends a lot of Mason and Dixon talking about. Yeah. Um, this idea of you know the the invisible barrier and like the Edenic landscape of of the Americas and the fact that you know the relationship between that Eden and its native people is very like sacred and and special and they don't reveal that to everybody I think it's very interesting how you kind of see that percolating in Pinchon you know seven years before he publishes Mason and Dixon and obviously as we've you know sort of hypothesized he was probably writing it for a while but it's really cool to kind of still see that carried over here that a lot of what um his mother-in-law especially mentions is this idea that like so much of Vineland is still like wilderness that's untapped and it's it's perfect to hide in but she mentions you know I don't even think that the government is ever going to be able to come in there and clear cut all that wood out and make it into houses and everything and that's that's again getting to this idea of of American landscapes as some kind of Eden as something sacred and then of course what's on the cover of this particular this particular book in most editions you know clear cutting of forests and we we hear mentions of different sort of governmental or construction entities going into these forests and trying to hack away 
you know, Blood and Vado's like harrowing journey through the woods is only possible for them because they know the territory well. They've lived there for a long time and they know how to traverse it. But bridges are out and there's all these construction crews, you know, stranded because they don't know how to navigate the forest. It shows that kind of continual grinding through of the natural resources that starts with Mason and Dixon and now continues here into the modern age where they're hitting sort of the last reserves of some of that untapped wilderness. Um, it's an interesting aspect to the book that kind of sits in the background for most of it and is is just kind of there for the reader to be experiencing if they're paying attention to it, but is very easily forgotten about. Yeah, it's a good section. Will, what about you? What's your quote? I've been trying to look for one that I like as much, but I cannot. So I'm going to be... Uh lazy and pick the last paragraph of the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after a while, Zoid was allowed into the Traverse Becker annual reunions, as long as he brought Prairie, who at about the age of three or four got sick one Vineland winter and looked up at him with dull hot eyes, snot crusted on her face, hair in a snarl, and croaked, Dad, am I ever gonna get better? Pronouncing it like Mr. Spock. And he had his belated moment of welcome to the planet Earth, in which he knew dismayingly that he would would have to do anything to keep this dear small life from harm, up to and including Brock Bond, a possibility he wasn't too happy with. But as he watched her then, year by year, among these reunion faces, her own was growing more and more to look like, continuing to feel no least premonitory sign of governmental interest from over the horizon beyond the mental disability checks that arrived faithfully as the moon, he at last began, even out scuffling every day, to relax some, to understand that this had been the place to, uh, been the pace, place to bring her, and himself after all. That for a few years anyway, he must have chosen right for a change. That time they'd come, that time they'd come through the slides and storms to put in here, to harbor in Vineland, Vineland the good. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just a really, I think it's a really beautiful moment that, uh, you know, for, for, for the listeners who are unaware, uh, the, the lot of us, all of us hosts here recently read The Ice Shirt by William T. Volman, and just the choice of bringing up the the title of the this book at this point um you know it it's it's chosen for a lot of reasons but you know the 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 kind of straightforward historical one is you know it's a reference to the original name for the new world that the vikings gave it and it's just a, a wonderful choice to actually you know bring the whole name into this novel um, I think something about reading that book made that paragraph hit me so much harder because mm. of the, the amount of emotion overlaid that that Volman is able to to bring to the table for uh for, for the reader to kind of empathize with the sense of desperation that the Vikings had when they were coming to North America. Yeah. I feel like yeah. if we keep going, you know, all of our listeners will eventually read <laughs> The ice shirt because it's two it's, books in a row now. Yeah, go. F it's hard to find, I will say, but it, find mm -hmm. a copy and read it. It's very, very. Uh, Luke, what was your quote? 
so mine's from the page before Will's. Um, Sasha's cousin, Claire, credited in the family with paranormal abilities, quickly enough redzoid, noted the unguttering flame of the torch he carried, and started having him over for supper and to look at old family snapshots, telling what she remembered of young Frenessi, the explorer, and the reports she'd come back with about rivers that weren't supposed to be where she found them, and of the lights on the far banks, and the many voices, hundreds it seemed, not exactly partying, nor exactly belligerent either. Boulders too heavy for anyone but Bigfoot to lift, come thudding all around her in the middle of the night, torrents of summer sun steelhead the size of dogs, glowing more than glittering, abandoned logging sites, boilers and stacks and flange gears looming up out of the blackberries, and the strange lost town of Shade Creek, closely evacuated in a flood of long ago, now unaccountably repopulated with villagers who never seemed to sleep. Um, we've kind of gone over like the horror aspects. The that's, that section's not this that small section not really cosmic horror, but it is. If you were to cut it right there, um, you know the people that don't sleep, the appearance of Bigfoot and stuff, it does kind of have this kind of like pastoral horror aspect to it. Um, I just really like that quote in general. It's a good one. It is a good one. I do love that description of Frenessi's like expeditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, I love the specific way that it's almost like this this weird trout turns into the machinery. It's a, it's a great section. Absolutely, it is. Uh, Cody, you're the last one. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna switch gears. I had a different one picked, but I've after we've gone through the chapter, I've changed mine. Uh, oh. I wasn't gonna go with the the crossing the Golden Gate Bridge, but I think that's we already talked about it, and that's also. Pretty easy, but this is actually just right after it, um, right before um, the sort of chapter half break that takes place in here on page 315. Trees. Soid must have dozed off. He woke to rain coming down in sheets, the smell of redwood trees and the rain through the open bus windows, tunnels of unbelievably tall, straight red trees whose tops could not be seen pressing into either side. Prairie had been watching them all the time and in a very quiet voice talking to them as, she, as they passed one by one. It seemed now and then as... As if she were responding to something she was hearing, and in rather a matter-of-fact tone of voice for a baby, too, as if this were a return for her to a world behind the world she had known all along. The storm lashed the night. Dead trees on slow log trucks reared up in the high beams, shaggy and glistening. The highway was interrupted by flooding creeks and minor slides that often obliged the bus to creep around inches from the edge of totality. Islemates struck up conversations. Joints appeared and were lit. Guitars came down from overhead racks and harmonicas out of fringe bags. And soon there was a concert that went on all night, a retrospective of the times they'd come through more or less as a generation. The singing of rock and roll, folk, Motown, 50s oldies, and at last for about an hour just before the watery sunrise, one guitar and one harmonica playing the blues. I, just, I love the... This depiction, I think, just kind of summarizes that, that leaving behind, like we were talking about earlier, about leaving that area and that life and that world and that culture um, and and just kind of slowly getting out of it. Now, what I really like, I think my favorite part of that whole thing is the backwards progression of the music as they leave, mm -hmm. going from the modern time, the rock and roll, backwards, backwards, you know, kind of like trying to slowly hold on to all these and, and remember what it is that's being left behind and just watching it chronologically fade away as they're, as they're leaving 
that area. I just, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is. There's something very somber about that scene too. Well, I think that'll bring us to most pinch on part of the chapter. Um, who wants to go first for that? Uh, my most pension part, this is a small one, I and mean, it's inconsequential, but it's just the weird digression about the fluorescence in, on the glasses at, at the bar. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was, <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I can't think of another author. I, I say this kind of stuff a lot, but I can't think of another author that would have included that. <laughs> do you want to read that out, Luke? That's a good poll. What, um, what page is it on, do we remember? I think oh. it's like 319 or something like Let that. See. I'm going through right now. It's towards the end, yeah. It's like two or three pages from the end. Uh, 318. Uh, yeah. 318, yeah. Um, the indigo ambiance of the fast lane lounge, known for the harmless liquid swabbed routinely onto the rims of the bar glasses, making them glow in the ultraviolet frequencies abroad in this room. Some of it was sure to come off on a drinker's mouth. Men usually wiped it away. Women either allowed it to diffuse through their lipstick, for which the substance had a strange affinity, until the entire lip area was aglow, or else avoided all contact by drinking through straws, content to admire the classroom effect as one might admire an angelus halo. Yeah, such an interesting, just random thing that he has yeah. in there. Yeah. Like, that just speaks to, I guess his imagination more than anything else just he probably just had that idea what if there was a bar that just wiped glowing liquid on their cups <laughs> i'll just throw that in here i feel yeah. like i've heard of something like this like people, i would believe it if it existed <laughs> like cracking open the, the you know the glow tubes putting it in like cocktails i feel like i've heard it of that sounds like something that like tom haverford would do absolutely snake yeah. juice with some extra glow oil Yep. That's so true. I can't stand that character. <laughs> I think that's the point. <laughs> I like I watched Parks and Rec for the first time and didn't have any issue with him. And then with every subsequent rewatch I did, I, I've watched that show maybe three times. I've just grown to be able to tolerate him less and less whenever he's on yeah. screen. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly what they're going for with this character. And Aziz Ansari is the perfect person to do that. Yeah, very true. It's almost a meta casting choice. Um, my most pinch on part of the chapter is probably, it's probably, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with the young Kissinger angle again, just because <laughs> it, it's, it's not just a funny bit that we, we glossed over, but also again, similar to like the glowing liquid, where do you come up with that other than maybe pinch on having that as like a private joke to himself and his friends for a while? Yeah. Like what, what if there was a movie about <laughs> Kissinger and he was played by Woody Allen? And he just ended up putting it into the book. Um, I would say that that might be half, might be what I'd have to go with. Yeah, if I mean, honestly, I take it as a proof of the fact that Kissinger had a relatively boring childhood. That there isn't a young Kissinger movie. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna say for me, it was the the breakdown of the Nixon to Reagan transition. I, mm -hmm. I'm going to change that now after uh, after Luke's comment on his funny part with the monolith of weed i think that might be yeah my choice at this point just you know luke described it perfectly like when you think about that scene in that movie if you haven't watched that movie um but just yeah like i'm just watching like the slow approach to it 
the reaching out and touching it, like the the way the music is building and this. Oh my god, yeah, it has to be that. Uh, Will, I think it's just you that hasn't given us yours, right? Yes, comes to me, and I'm going to bring the the shortest quote I've ever brought to the table. Mm-hmm. Jesus uh, wept. Nope. <laughs> no, I look. The standard is much larger than a normal sentence, and you know it. <laughs> my my choice for most pension part is the one sentence after uh after Zoid is furious at Hector for daring to ask him to to turn on one of his friends uh in exchange for his uh you know receiving bail. Um a strange trick of the light, no doubt, or else Zoid was inopportunely hallucinating, but the highlights on each of Hector's eyeballs had vanished. The shine faded to matte surfaces that were now absorbing all light that fell on them. I, it's especially post against the day. I, <laughs> I've come to see the way that Pynchon uses light's refractivity a lot more in, the, in his earlier novels. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just a really perfect example of how he does use light symbolically. Because, you know, whether you take it as, uh, you know, Hector, you know, hardening himself, or as just Hector being feeling feeling downtrodden in a weird way, like, really, you think I would do this? You think I'm not doing everything I can for you? How dare you? Whether it's personal pain or it's just a a cop saying fuck you, the way it's described is uh, really, really unique. True. Yeah. Well, we don't have any listener comments, questions, or anything from Instagram or anything like that, right? No, we we don't. We could talk about the the volume issues, but that would probably be pretty boring. (laughs) Do Do we want, Cody, do you want to include an explainer in the episode for that? Uh, so for anyone listening on Spotify, uh, we have been, if, if you didn't, I put it, I tweeted about this the other day, but if you, if we are aware of some issues, uh, where people are saying that Will's volume specifically is very low, um, that seems to, from what I have been able to tell, um, that seems to be an issue with Spotify's, um, compression algorithm. They have a very specific, um, volume limit that they, that they place. And if, certain audio is below or above that threshold their compression compression kicks on and it can cause issues with that um i i handle all the audio production uh for this so i am doing what i can to try and correct that um it only seems to be affecting spotify and for the time being until i can actually like re-upload episodes um my understanding is that there's a loudness normalization on spotify and that should help um so, you know, I, like I said, I will try to go in and re-upload, like, remastered, remixed um, Vineland episodes, um, and hopefully that'll fix it. So apologies if it is something that is impacting you and it makes it kind of a challenge to listen to, but it is something that we are trying to fix. Um, so for the time being, I would say try the loudness normalization, or if you have another means of listening to the show, um, try it on there, because... We've tried it on multiple platforms and haven't seen an issue with it there. It only seems to be with Spotify. So, and this is a good moment for all of us to say thank you, Cody, 
for for doing this hard work of yeah absolutely getting the audio oh, yeah appreciate they it. don't say it enough of course. <laughs> it's it's been a real learning experience it's helped me uh kind of gain some audio engineering skills that i didn't have so yeah no obviously that's that's a lot of work we all appreciate it very much well thank you so that does bring us to the end of our discussion of chapter 14. Uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we have one chapter left. That's chapter 15. We are going to be splitting that discussion in two. So you are going to be getting two chapter 15 episodes from us. It's it's a 62-page chapter. It's a real monster. So um, we're going we're gonna to take our time with it. Um, but yeah, we'll be back for that next week. And then after that, we'll have our wrap-up episode before, before being all done with Vineland. Um, as always, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. See ya. Bye. Where um, there's only like three things on the menu. There's just lattes, Americanos, and like hot coffee and like espresso shots, I guess. And we don't have like any syrups. Like maybe there will be a bottle of vanilla kicking around somewhere. Like we 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 just serve like one milk and like oat milk so that anyone can drink it. I guess it's cash only with no change. <laughs> you don't pay an exact change. <laughs> the rest of it just goes into a tip jar. Um, the only thing we have on like our menu is like a grilled cheese, and it's a dollar. And if you give us more than a dollar, you get either that equivalent units of grilled cheese or <laughs> no change. And also, the baristas are just able to talk to customers however they want. They can play their own music. And the store kind of has hours, but nothing too solid. It's just sort of whenever the first person gets there. The and last then, person leaves. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And every every time I tell this to one of my coworkers, they all just say, yeah, I would work at that, <laughs> at that coffee shop. I kind of think I would go to that coffee shop, to be honest. Yeah, it really sounds like you've invented the future of diners. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. Hey, can I get a grilled cheese? All I have is a 20. Well, you can have 20 of them, or you can have one and give us $19. Imagine how easy taxes would be to do. That's oh my God. <laughs> it's all cash only, so there's no record of yeah. it anyway. Yeah. You have like four suppliers. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like the local grocery store, literally, for slices of cheese, and then like whatever the closest coffee roastery is. I would go. I I think I would end up going to that coffee shop. See, Assuming they're open when I get there, I think. Right? That would yeah. Well, <laughs> I see. I feel like that coffee shop has the possibility of succeeding, but it would need to be in the right place. Like, oh, for sure. Yeah. Like if if that, could, that co- yeah, it it could work in Austin. That yeah, sitting yeah. like that, it could totally work. One one of the one of the cities I literally give as an example to people whenever. Because I've had baristas beg me to open this coffee shop. I'm like, with what money? But I'll definitely put you on the list. And whenever they're like, well, yeah, you would probably work here. I'm like, I don't know. I think like Portland, Austin, like yeah. the, the Minneapolis, like Twin Cities area, probably New York. Jesus, it does sound like, like a Portlandia sketch. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Except Fred Armisen would be like super uh, arrogant about what kind of coffee beans they have. Yeah, and it would be it'd have to be some kind of like artisanal cheese that like is sourced right. from some farm a hundred miles away. Yeah. 
you might need minimum hours you know yeah. <laughs> like you know just like a two or th- two or three hour slot that somebody's gonna be there yeah just be like well i can guarantee you that if you get there by noon and before 3 p.m we'll be open it Someone may be, be it may be as as wide ranging tomorrow as seven to you know eleven but it, it just depends on when someone's gonna be there and, and it might be the barista who's afraid of flames so you might not get a grilled cheese <laughs> you, you might just be able to get coffee but it'll be coffee it, it will be coffee they, and... now they can make a cheese sandwich if you're okay with it just being two pieces of cheese <laughs> between two pieces of bread you know, it's really unfortunate that I never really realized until just now that all grilled cheese is, is a cheese sandwich that's been it's toasted. It's a warm cheese sandwich, yeah. it's, it's really all it is. It's a, che- it's a cheese sandwich with a fever. That's pretty good, cheese sandwich with a fever. That sounds like a restaurant lingo. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he's getting a cheese sandwich with a, f- with a fever. Throw a patty on that, grilled onions, salt spice. I love diner lingo. That's that's some good stuff. It is some good stuff. Absolutely. Oh, I found so that Jaco Pastoria Silver Record Portrait of Tracy that I'd recommend on the show like a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. My record store here got a copy of it like right after we released that episode. Really? I was like, oh hell yeah, now I can go buy that. I've never seen nice. it before. But now he's staring at me from above my record shelf. Nice. Weather Report was the, the band. I remember we were trying That's to figure that out last right. time. That's what it is. A, a band that did not deserve him. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but then he, he no. played faithfully in he for was... years. <laughs> yeah, I have to wonder what, like, what kept him there. Because that just, yeah, I never really could wrap my head around that. Yeah, because I'm looking through the people who were in it. It was kind of a, it was kind of a super group. Yes, I think Al Demiola was in there. I could be wrong. It's been a minute since I even thought about Weather Report. Peter Erskine was the drummer. Jacob Storius replaced Alfonso. Oh, shit, they've Jackson. had a ton of people in and out of there. Okay. Yeah. Steve Gadd. That's a name I haven't heard in a while. Yeah, that's for sure. Good old session musicians. Whatever happened to session musicians? I feel like that's such a thing that isn't around that much anymore. I I think they are. They just don't get the credit that is due to them. Like people like, like if you go and look at Josh Freese, that dude has played on everything and he does not get a lot of credit for it. Um, it's usually drummers, I think, that are the ones that tend to fall into that uh, that category. But like, I know Freese, and then like Ilan Rubin played for a bunch of different people uh, before he kind of made Nine Inch Nails his permanent thing. Yo, this this list for Josh Freese is insane. It's did you ever hear about the solo <laughs> album he put out? No. Okay, so I've he he's been like a big uh, influence on me ever since I even started playing drums. Yeah, And so I kind of always had kept an eye on him. And back in like, let me see if I can find it, because I don't want to do it disservice by not really explaining fully what he did. Um, okay, yeah, okay. So he did this album called Since 1972. 
Uh, this was 2009. And is a this was like when the kind of pay what you want thing had just started happening. And so he did a... Um, God, let me find the whole list. He took it to an extreme that was absolutely amazing. It may not, I may not be able to find it. Anyway, he did this whole, like, you could buy all these different bonus editions of the album that came with bizarre things, like people who paid 50 bucks got a congratulatory phone call. Uh, if you paid 20,000, you would get two, song, two songs recorded about you. Um, for a certain price, a lot of these were also jokes. Like there was one where if you paid a certain amount, you could ride around with Danny Carey in his car while you do mushrooms and he plays whatever he wants on the radio. Um, there was one where you get to like hang out with him for a day, which that one I think was legit. And someone actually paid that amount and actually hung out with him. Um, but yeah, it was all these weird, like bizarre options that you could pay into and, and get these supposed bonus things. But yeah, he's played on pretty much everything that you can imagine. And now that he's the Foo Fighters drummer, he's got that going for him. So, yeah, I, I really feel like the, I don't. Okay, I don't like the Foo Fighters, but something in me thought that if you're ever going to end this band, which you probably should at this point, that would have been the natural point to do. This it. would be the time to 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 end this band, this this experiment, because. It just doesn't feel, even as a non-Foo Fighters fan, it does not feel right it to didn't. me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's very strange. And poor Pat Smear, that poor man <laughs> loses the singer for his first band and then gets put onto uh, Nirvana with the third record and loses the singer for that loses band. Loses the singer for that. And then, you know, the drummer from that band hooks him up with a gig playing guitar in his new band, and then their drummer dies. Like, wow, that's yeah. just. Yeah, it's it's so and I OK, I the first two Foo Fighters albums are are really good for me. Uh, Color yeah, in the Shape is are... like holds a lot of water for me. I, I think that album that was one of those right time, right place kind of things for me. And I still absolutely adore that record everything uh, after that has been really hit or miss and more miss than hit as it's gone on mm-hmm. um i respect Grohl's musician i like him as a person he seems like a cool dude like i'm sure he's yeah. a fun hang i just like i feel like he could do so much more and i think he could do more behind the drums than he does as a front man i'm sure he loves doing free fighters and that's what it is um I just but, it, I I've never I've never watched somebody turn into a dad more than I have with Dave Grohl considering yeah, where he's, he's a cool dad though <laughs> where he started with you know like pretty heavy punk bands and then Nirvana and yeah. then you know he did a, that string of projects before Foo Fighters with like he played with Queens of the Stone Age he he did that probot 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 thing yeah. Like he did all well, of these like heavier things and then Foo Fighters started and it was like, yeah, pretty good in the beginning when it was just him. And then just slowly as time has gone on, it has evolved into dad rock in proportion to Dave Grohl as a man turning into dad rock. He's he's by himself keeping AOR albums to be a thing. <laughs> and kudos to him, I guess. Like the the flip side of that, it's you're you're right in that that's yeah, he's become a dad. 
But the flip side, if you want to see the 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 former rock music, like former, I I'm gonna put edgy and heavy quotes here, but he played heavier music earlier on. He did yeah. Art, Art Alexakis is the opposite of that because he's gone. He's like super Christian dad now, um, to the point where he's like he will not curse in his songs anymore because it goes against his his newfound Christianity. So he's gone the same path, but branched off kind of almost opposite direction simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, it's wild. But I think I I would, I would certainly rather have Dave Grohl as just a dad, as a cool dad than as a Christian dad. Oh, for sure. That would would be weird. I don't don't want to hang out with Art Alexakis. I like, (laughs) Everclear was never Everclear was never that cool. Like they were uh, He's the kind of guy who's gonna have that man cave in his basement that you got invited to. As a a Christian dad, that's his like edgy hangout zone where he gets to really express his his masculinity. (laughs) Except he wouldn't be playing uh Matchbox 20 and and Kid Rock and all that, it would be like Jars of Clay and DC Talk. Yeah, Switchfoot. Switchfoot. <laughs> Reliant K. Oh, God. My middle school years are flashing before my eyes. Ah, uh, same. Christian rock was good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, are we you gonna heard call that. It, are we going to call it rock? I, I think so. They, they call it rock. It's, it's generous. Hey, it, we could listen to count. Toby Mac, the founder of Christian <laughs> well, hip hop. I mean, if you want to go, like, we can do the Christian punk rock and put on some MXPX. That's true. We could go. God, we could go Christian classic rock and put on some Petra. Oh God. <laughs> Who? What? There was a. Ah, uh, God, it's gonna drive me nuts. I got to figure out his name. There, I remember. I found. I, I learned this when I worked at Barnes and Noble. There was a Christian rapper, and he tried to make a song that went after Eminem. Mm. Uh, which I just remember thinking, like, why? Why so are you doing this? About insane clown posse. No, <laughs> well, that was a weird thing. Where after two decades of making that music, they came out and they just went, "Hey guys, surprise! It was all about Jesus." It was all all those times you were <laughs> killing people with hatchets. All for all for the big J, man. People don't understand Christian satire. It's very nuanced. <laughs> it's a, really, a, lot of, a lot of layers to it. KJ52, that's who it was. He um Oh man, I haven't heard that name in so he long. He wrote a song called Dear Slim, which <laughs> I think I've heard let's, this. Let's be honest. Before. Like I know I guarantee this never came up on Eminem's radar, but I kind of wish it had like Say what you will about the, his quality as a as a musician nowadays and his output and all that. He like there are still few people who can absolutely destroy someone in a in a diss track, and he's mm-hmm. at the, almost at the top of that pile. Um, I would love to have seen what he could have done with this, but I <laughs> get why he wouldn't. Yeah, I absolutely could, man. There was a Christian screamo band, like oh, early there was two, a few of them. Early two thousand screamo called uh, Thousand Foot Crutch. Yes, yes. I remember. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I remember seeing them in concert, and I got dragged along to this concert against my will, basically, and watching them perform. 
the entire time going, this is for God? <laughs> this is what you, you think in your mind that you're going to come up here and start a mosh pit for Jesus? Like, what is this is so strange. Why are people you know, listening to this? There was also a couple of uh, Christian ska bands. I remember Squad 5.0 played here in San Antonio a few times. <laughs> oh, this, the, the Scottisance in the early 2000s and late 90s is, was really it was, something. It really was. It's wrapping back around, I swear to God. I, I feel like I hear more you and more so? local get real ska big fish bands. Back I don't think it'll ever be like a record label pushed thing, but if the amount of local bands that are starting that are sky is any indication, there's a lot of people still interested in in that music. It it's was true. it's a, it's a plague, is what it is. <laughs> I mean, it had its time, that's for sure. But it's had too many of its times. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, the the specials are a good band. The specials, yeah, I'll give you that. And like, there was, like, there's a few real big fish songs that I I dug, and I'll still listen to every now and then. Sell out was good. Beer was good. Their cover of Take on Me was pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. I I simply have decided. Um, in fact, I did decide long ago that I I do not like ska baselessly. So that's what this is. This is an expression of the pure human will. I'm not going to try to convert you and tell you, like, <laughs> go listen to these bands because they're going to change your life. Like, It's all about the names. There's a ska, there was a local band. Like they did have good names. They did I have good names. There's this local band named Ethan Frump and the Stockbrokers that, that, that did ska music. God. And that's just so good. The the guy who hosts uh, sixty songs that explain the nineties was in a ska band, um, and it had a really good name. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I gotta see if I can find it because it was really good. Scantily, scantily plaid, but it was S K A N T I L Y. Amazing. It does seem like um, about fifty percent of everyone who played a guitar or any instrument really in the late nineties had had a ska band. Yeah, I mean it. It Pretty was much, like yeah. it was like what the punk was to late seventies. Sorry, what punk was to the late seventies was what ska was in the nineties to you know former guitarists. I don't think I don't know what's going. I wish I could help. I don't know computers for shit. So I know a little bit. <laughs> you probably know more than me. Well, <laughs> haven't used Windows in. I mean, it's actually coming up on a decade. Are you oh, a you're, Linux you user? Linux, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Ah, I knew it. <laughs> Maybe yeah, you I... should listen to Ska then. <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> <laughs> it might bring some joy into your life. <laughs> I listen Their to effervescent energy might... Ska. Are you a fan of the overall vibe of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater? <laughs> Hey now, come on! That's a cheap shot. I there was so that. much ska on that. Game. There really was. It was an inordinate amount of ska on there, especially on the first one. The second mm-hmm. one ramped up the punk. See, that's why. Okay, you're gonna get me going on a tangent now. Uh, there was a there was a different skating game on the PlayStation called Thrasher Skater Die that had a monumentally better soundtrack than Tony Hawk did. 
Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I, I'm getting destroyed too young that's for Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Well, now, you, now they have wait, the remake what did you on say? the PlayStation. I'm a, I'm a little too young for it. It, it. it wasn't cool for my generation. It's been around for, for like there was iterations yeah. of that forever. Yeah, and it's just it wasn't cool by the time I came around. <laughs> Everyone's like older brother played it, and they're like, "Eh, that's old." We were the generation that just played Call of Duty for some reason. That, that was a game simulated simulated warfare is a good time for all. I mean, I <clears> can <throat> get down with some good old simulated warfare. That's not good. Like, I mean, not not at the point it became popular, it was kind of okay, and then it was very not very not good. It's incredible how how not good it is, even as a game, ignoring any politics of it all. I just also was never a big fan of first-person shooters. Outside of GoldenEye and... I liked Bioshock, so those two. That that's a God will forever be my favorite game series. Which yeah, okay, so I'm looking at the... Oh, Bioshock. Oh, yeah, yeah. There. I'm looking at the, the Thrasher Skate and Destroy soundtrack. This is all, it's all like golden era hip-hop, so it's way better than all the ska stuff that was on Tony Hawk. Yeah, I'm, I like the uh, the arcadey first person shooters like Team Fortress and stuff. But not a, not I used to play a lot of Team Fortress too when I did play games. It's I mean it it's one of those things where at a certain point it stops being about the mechanics of the genre and more about you know the teamwork aspect. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. What characters did you play? Oh, um, I mean. I was one of those people who was actually like good at pyro. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it, it, uh, <clears throat> I I liked I liked the dings, you know, dope dopamine, dope dopamine. <laughs> it is a very satisfying sound when you activate that that ability. Kate, have you listened to the Smiles new album? No, I need to get on that because apparently it's better than. That's what I heard. One. Yeah, my brother-in-law texted me the other day and said it sounded more like them kind of finding their own sound rather than sounding like a Radiohead offshoot. So it, it, here, here's how I feel about the smile. I remember when I saw um, their like announcement performance at that British yeah thing, the one where um, freaking what's his name? What's the Radiohead guy's name? Not Johnny Greenwood. Uh, Tom York. Tom York puts like the bass over his his neck, and then he like has this crazy look on his face where he's yep. like, "Where the smile?" <laughs> Not as somebody smiling, ha 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 ha, but as the man who smiles when he lies. <laughs> and then they just started playing right after that. Like I saw that whole thing and was like really impressed by it. Yeah. And then when they released their couple singles, I was also pretty impressed by those two. And then I joined their mailing list, which was set up like a waste mailing system from Pinchon, which I I think is interesting. Um, And then when the album came out, I listened to it the first time and I was like, wow, this is this feels unremarkable. (laughs) And 
Um, yeah. They did this. They did this KEXP live performance where it was it was the exact opposite of the album, where they did a bunch of live improvisation and still like retain some of the melody and song structure of the stuff off the record. But it was like listening to a completely different band. It was crazy to me. So I was like, well, I guess I'll give this another try because this is an amazing set they did. And I remember being underwhelmed by the record. So I went back and listened to it again and I could appreciate it more the second time. And I kind of picked up where some of like the traces for what they did live on that KEXP set came in, but I still wasn't super impressed with the album. Like I really loved half of it and the other half Mm -hmm. of it. I was like, okay, that's fine. I remember listening to it and just thinking like, yeah, it's, it's good, but it wasn't, it didn't blow me away, but yeah, I need to, I need to sit down with a new one and see. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, though, because pretty much everyone is saying, like you said, like they either found their own sound or like just sort of overall took a step up. Yeah. I think at this point, I I don't bank on getting any more Radiohead records. So no. I think this is as close as it's going to get to anything like that. I, I feel like I feel like a moon shaped pool is a Radiohead record about the depression of there being no more Radiohead records. Yeah, and this this group of people who literally were all friends since like grade school and had played music together for basically their entire lives realized that kind of the tank was empty, and that's what that album is, in my opinion. <laughs> well, so for me, when I saw that they had True Love Waits on there, I was like, well, they finally figured it out, so this is probably it. Like, and burn the witch. The same thing happened there too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I like some of Tom York's solo material. I rarely love a whole album of his solo material. I didn't like the first one he put out that much. The like the eraser or something like that. Yeah. That's that one. I don't believe I've listened to. I've listened to his Suspiria soundtrack, and that. I really enjoyed. And then I listened to Anima and I thought, oh, okay. But then like, he's got a lot of individual singles that I think are really good for just like one or two songs. Um, So his solo record is kind of interesting, but Johnny Greenwood's like scores are some of the consistently the best scores in Hollywood. I'm curious if he's going to do P.T. Anderson's new one. I haven't heard anything about it. Yeah, I haven't either. I need to go back and rewatch Phantom Thread. I feel like I really liked it. I, I yeah. I think it took it threw a lot of people for a loop, um, because it it really truly was one of the more different films he's done. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was kind of a shift similar to like going from like Boogie Nights and Magnolia to Punch Drunk Love. It was kind of the same shift in in tone and style. Kate, I was I was going to reply with a picture to your to your harassment, um, and I, I just I just didn't. So I'm just going to tell you what it was. It was going to be a picture of a pair of scissors saying, "On my way to destroy a business," <laughs> but just uh, didn't happen. So there you go. I could not when I when I pulled into that like outdoor mall and I saw that they had 
just a dedicated store to untuck it. I could not believe it. Like I was shocked. I had no idea what that was until I looked it up. It's the only kind of shirts that Will wears. Yep. Yep. (laughs) I pay extra. Yeah, I saw I was like eighty eighty dollars for a shirt. (laughs) They're very expensive for God knows why. (laughs) I have shirts from high school still. Like I don't like buying clothes. I I don't want to pay eighty dollars for a shirt. It's outrageous. Those are designer prices. Mm-hmm. Like low end designer, but designer on sale prices. It's wild. It's just you know, think about all of the time you'll be saving ironing. <laughs> like I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand. Hang, hang up your damn clothes, people. Yeah, it's not that I, hard. Don't really don't not. leave your laundry unfolded in the basket for five to seven business days. And if yeah. you do, run it for like five minutes. Right. All right, chapter 14 of Finally. You don't want to pivot and become a laundry-based podcast where we tell people good advice for clothes here. Line dry your clothes, everyone. Fabric softener is a scam. Today we're going to be reviewing Tide's new laundry detergent. I don't like it. I think this kind of stinks. New York is exactly the place that that podcast would come out of. So yep. obviously we cannot make it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, <laughs> we'll move to New York after we move to the Faroe Islands. That'll be the, that'll be the continued evolution of the show's existence. It'd be inauthentic to do anything, but I agree. I agree. Speaking of speaking of rap songs, did, did we all listen to Ben Shapiro's uh, "Fire Fire Verse"? Fuck. Wait, <laughs> I, what? I thought, I thought that was a joke. I saw the picture from that. I thought it was what? a joke. It's a real thing. What ben is Shapiro's this? On the new, ben Shapiro's on the new Tom McDonald, McDonald single. No, <laughs> really? Just I I know this is me. I I'm actually being serious. It's not the rapping isn't bad. Like it's it's not. It's not bad, but it is Ben Shapiro. And Download on iTunes. What is it, 2003? So he actually, so he, he actually has like a decent cadence. He's not like stumbling over and getting off time. Yeah, like it's not bad. I mean, it's, it's, he raps kind of quickly. Um, I hate that I just said that, that it's true, but it's not. <laughs> It's not terrible rapping. Well, because that's the reason I ask is like a lot of times I hear when I hear people who aren't, you know, rappers by nature, by their, you know, as their career or anything like they tend to. It's not something you can just jump into and do like so they, a lot of times they stumble over the beat or they they have a really shitty cadence. Um, I don't want to hear it, but I'm listening to it I, right now. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Why? So He's we wearing a, a a sweatshirt with the Dare logo, except it says I saw, "facts." That's the I saw, yeah. What were you saying, Will? I'm terrified of what you're describing. What is it? What oh, about? <laughs> I'll let Luke tell you because he knows more than yeah. I do. There's a BRT televisions in the music video with Ben Shapiro's face on it, like Big Brother. 
Ben Shapiro does a rap verse on the new Tom McDonald single. Holy shit. Yeah. Kate's, we're experiencing Kate listening to it in real time. This is so weird. I'm going to get unreasonably upset if I listen to it. So I that, That's why I can't do it. I, I Nope. I'll wait for uh, Dead and Hip Hop to take, take a stand on it before I... I can't believe I just watched Ben Shapiro rap like that. Wet ass pussy. That's the thing that confuses me the most is that he like doesn't believe rap is music. Why would he do this? Because he's an inconsistent asshole, I guess. <laughs> ben, I've never rapped before. Tom, just talk slower. You'll be fine. <laughs> in, in reference to the his rap verse, uh, Shapiro tweeted that... Uh, um, that Bach wasn't uh, respected during his time uh, alive either, and that that's why people don't like his rap verse. That's fucking hilarious. Wow. Which implies a lot of you stuff. That it does. In a weird coincidence, I'm looking at Tom McDonald's Wikipedia page, that, that KJ52 song we were talking about earlier redirects to this page. <laughs> That's crazy. Man, I can't believe this is real.